Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast. This week, we have a very special guest. Dr. James Ricosi is with us. Um, he has a, a, some internet connection issues, so we're going to just immediately cut to him rather than doing introductions like we normally do. And uh, thanks we a lot, a very Dr. Ricosi, for Dr. joining James us. Dr. James Ricosi is with us. Oh, um, he has a, a, some internet connection issues, right so we're going to just immediately cut to him rather than doing introductions like we normally do. There we go. I do apologize about the loop there. I uh, forgot to mute that screen. Okay, go ahead, uh, Dr. Rakosi. Uh, I just want to introduce you. Um, so, Dr. Rakosi is one of the original people that helped found what we all under currently understand as commercial aquaponics or any kind of aquaponics, and has done uh, helped found a lot of the research that has then got us all to where we're currently able to do aquaponics and uh, on the commercial and home scale. So, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, I've been trying to get you on for quite a long time and uh, I really appreciate you joining us. And um, some of our panelists are also having some issues connecting as well. Marty and, and Charlie are both having issues connecting right now. So, they will be joining us shortly. And um, uh, thanks again, Dr. Rakosi, for joining us. Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for inviting me. So, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what you do and then um, I have a, a bunch of questions I'd like to ask you. Okay, what, well, let me just give you a little bit of a history. Um, I, um, I got my PhD in aquaculture in uh, 1980, and then I got a job at the University of the Virgin Islands. And um, <clears throat> one of my assignments was to develop aquaponics, and I was there for 30 years, 30 years doing that. And uh, then I retired in 2010, and the last seven years I've been living in Thailand, and I, I have a consulting uh, firm called uh, the Aquaponic Doctors. So that's that's the quick version. <laughs> awesome. So why don't you give us a little bit of a background about um, how you got started, and then I'd love for at some point for you to bring up uh, uh, some of the, you know, the fact that you were telling me about today about how some people died originally in the beginning about how they were, when they were cleaning their systems. And that was really eye-opening to me when we got a chance to talk yeah, earlier. But that was not aquaponics. That was not aquaponics. That was recirculating systems. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so that, I don't want to give the people the idea that you die if you do aquaponics. <laughs> oh, oh, not at all. I, it was just eye-opening to me about how the early days, they didn't quite understand the, all that was going yeah. on. and. Well, yeah, this is it. If you ever have a, 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 a very deep tank with sludge in the bottom, don't go in, don't get yourself lowered into the bottom of that because it could all be uh, methane or carbon dioxide. So just be careful of that. And you'll, and you'll, and you'll die. You'll just drop dead. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about the early days and how you, uh, how you got started with aquaponics? You're, you're one of the founders. So I'm very curious to see, to hear about that. Well, the real early days. <laughs> I, it started off with my childhood interest in um, fishing in Wisconsin and raising aquarium fish. I had 17 aquariums and I raised fish and sold them to aquarium stores. And I did gardening, you know, in the ground. And then um, fast forward, um, I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin. And that was in uh, 1967. I, after that, I went to Sierra Leone in the Peace Corps for two years. I lived in West Africa for two years. Saw a lot of a lot of uh, starvation, a lot of hunger there. People, the babies had distended stomachs, indicating protein deficiencies. Got interested in food production. And um, when I got back 
I, uh, I'm skipping a, a little, some episodes here, but I, I got a master's degree at the University of North Carolina in environmental biology. I didn't even know what aqua, I didn't even know the word aquaculture at that time. The aquaculture was just a new word at that time. And um, I, I liked the idea of raising fish because I was always interested in fish. So um, I subscribed to Aquaculture Magazine, saw a picture at Auburn University of a bunch of foreign students lifting up a net for clopping, and I said, that's what I want to do. And uh, so I applied for my PhD at uh, Auburn University, and I graduated in uh, 1980. And while I was there, my research was a sort of a precursor to an aquaponic system. I raised tilapia very intensively in tanks. And I had a lot of different stages um, of, for filtration, and, and I was mainly relying on aquatic plants. But among the aquatic plants, such as water hyacinth and uh, duckweed, I also raised water chestnut and watercress. I also raised submerged plants too, uh, uh, elodea and Venezuela, and I sold, sold sold those to aquarium stores too. I always like to sell the things when I get done raising them, and um, so that. When I graduated, there was an opening at the University of the Virgin Islands, and um, and the, there was a my predecessor uh, had built a little aquaponic system next to the university. His name was Barnaby Wadden, and uh, he had some good results. Some it was just a, a rough system, a preliminary system, but it, it worked. He produced fish and he produced uh, tomatoes, and then that interested the director at the experiment station, and he wanted to um, they well. Barnaby Watton and his uh, supervisor wanted to uh, pursue aquaponics, but and they started ordering tanks. But by the time the tanks came, they both left, and then I got the job, and I stayed for 30 years. And we started a long process of uh, trial and error to finally get a commercial scale developed. Um, probably about 19 years into my uh, tenure there. But I'll just stop. I'll just pause here for a second and see if there's any questions. I, that, I, that's the that's first I've ever heard about the, um, the beginning. I'd love for you to continue. Okay, well, let me let's let me get into the to the research part of it. Um, our first system that we set up, well, we were we didn't even have a research facility. We had a we had a build of we had to build a shed. We had a we had to put build, put in tanks and electric lines, water lines, air lines. The very first system we set up as a demonstration consisted of three and a half oil barrels. And these are not the plastic oil barrels, these are metal oil barrels. And uh, we knew somebody who was interested, could do, do welding, and uh, he was interested in the concept. So he, uh, one oil barrel represented the fish tank, and then he, he made a, a cone at the bottom of another oil barrel, and then we took uh, one oil barrel and cut, he cut it in half and we used uh, two-thirds of each half and we filled them with gravel and it was a flood and drain system and then the water went from there to a sump and got pumped back up to the fish tank and then our first trial with that uh, it was four and a half month trial and we raised a hundred pounds of food in you know three and a half oil barrels we raised uh, about 30 pounds of tilapia 64 pounds of tomatoes and eight pounds of lettuce. And we kept that same design, that that's, that's the UVI system, the University of the Virgin Islands system. We kept that same design and we scaled it up to where we had one fish tank that was 3,000 gallons and 
It had uh, uh, two hydroponic tanks that each were 20 feet long by four feet wide. And uh, it, again, we used gravel and um, it was a flood and drain. And we found, we, we went through a lot of, um, lot of mistakes. I, I don't want to spend all the time time on the podcast talking about all the mistakes, but we didn't have the, we didn't know the right ratios for the fish to the plants. We didn't have the, know the right pipe sizes. We didn't know that a clarifier doesn't take out all the solids. It only took out the, the big settable solids. About half the solids passed through and clogged the gravel. And uh, so we made a lot of uh, adjustments and we got some good results. We, um, we learned, um, uh, well, we learned not to use gravel, basically, <laughs> uh, because gravel, for a commercial system, gravel is just too heavy, takes too much of an infrastructure, and, uh, and it's difficult to plant in gravel. There's always the danger of clogging. We, we got over the danger of clogging by putting in a false bottom, and we suspended the gravel about three inches over the bottom of the tank. Uh, then we, then when we did that, we had accumulation of solids in that false bottom, and we solved that problem by putting tilapia in there and letting them swim up and down, and they stirred up the solids, so the solids moved down through the system, and were taken out by the clarifier. And uh, we eventually came around to the point where gravel was not good for commercial aquaponics, and we switched over to polystyrene. We had the system that I'm describing. We had six replicated systems so we could do controlled experiments where we had two treatments replicated three times. Then we, based on that, we scaled it up to a hundred foot long hydroponic tanks by four foot wide. We had two of those in one fish tank. We um, also had a smaller fish tank and uh, well, that, okay, we had, what we set up was two systems. One we call high tech and one we call low tech. The high tech had the clarifier and it had a biofilter and it had a sump and the low tech didn't have any clarification. We just left the solids in there. We quickly learned that you can't leave the solids in when you have a, a deep water culture because the solids collect on the bottom of the tank on a hot day with all that decomposition gas, the solids will rise up into the plant roots and suffocate the plants. They won't be able to get oxygen and they would wilt down. So we eliminated the low tech. And then we wanted, we uh, had this biofilter in there and we had a rotating biological contactors and uh, we, want, we start, wanted to see if uh, we really needed these biofilters because we had uh, two tanks that were four feet wide and a hundred foot long. So that's, uh, you know, that's uh, 800 square feet of growing area. And um, so we took out the, the, the two, we had, we had uh, stages, uh, support supports for these rotating biological contactors. We took the contact uh, rotating uh, contactors out. We just let the water run through those two empty stages. And then we noticed that we had a lot more solids <laughs> settling out. So we realized at that point that we needed a second stage besides clarification. And that's where we then came up with the, well, it wasn't our original idea. Somebody else was using orchard netting, but orchard netting has got a lot of great characteristics. But anyway, we started feeding more and more food to the fish tank, and we found out we had uh, tremendous biofiltration capacity in the in the growing beds. And we didn't need to have a biofilter. The growing beds could be the biofilter in a deep water culture system. 
And uh, but the big tr issue then became if you have only one fish tank in the beginning when you have fingerlings, uh, you don't have enough nutrients. At the end, you have probably more than enough. To, you might have uh, toxicity develop. But then we decided to build uh, our first commercial system where we had four fish tanks. The fish were staggered. Uh, 20, the total growth period was 24 weeks, but we would harvest one tank every six weeks. And then uh, we had we upped the uh, number of um, of uh, growing beds to six growing beds that were 100 feet long by four feet wide. We had like uh, three sets of two growing beds. The water would flow out, and come out one growing bed and come back the other growing bed and come to a sump and get pumped up to the fish tanks. Um, the design was really good because it. Uh, Eliminated the amount of piping you needed. The water it was mainly what we call open channel flow. Water flowed out through the growing bed and then it came back to another growing bed and we had very minimal piping. And the sump was right next to the fish tank, so there was very minimal pumping and there was very little friction loss when you're pumping. And there was only one pump. We pumped up to the fish tanks and the water flowed by gravity through the whole system until it came back down to the sump. We um, do it in South Africa. I mean, is that where you developed that? Because that's how I learned from my friend who taught me hydroponic nutrients to make my mix in my hydroponic greenhouse. That's what they did four by 100 foot beds. That's in South Africa. When was that? Oh, shoot. Probably 20 years. He was he did all South Africa and Kenya, because as we as you probably know, over there, the government tells you what to grow and they give you the seed. And then you grow it if you have a farm and he would go around and he'd set up everybody's farm. And they had I mean, I saw a picture. I, I can't find them. I'm really bummed out. But I had pictures where you you can't see the end of the farm and they're just under posts and shade cloths with four by 100 foot beds that drop one inch and eighth and then it has a sump at the bottom pumps it right back up or like you said you can stagger it where it pumps up and gravity's back to the you know but they were kind of you know playing going down a hill most of them like that you know, I, I was just i was just in south africa i gave a i gave a workshop in south africa and um nobody told me about that uh in fact um aquaponics seemed to be very new to the people in south africa <laughs> Um, so, um, I, uh, I'm sorry, we were, it, it we, was hydroponics. I thought I made that clear. No, I was oh, just saying they were using the four by 100 grow bed system. Like oh, you're describing. oh we're not, doing, I'm not, what they do I, in Africa. that's what sold me on uh, becoming a, a hydroponic farmer because I said, if they can do it in South Africa, we should be able to do it in South Carolina. Actually, a guy named Merle Jensen from uh, University of Arizona was the first person I saw doing that. So we, I don't claim that we discovered that either. Uh, I think the guy probably, uh, Merle Jensen was probably, I don't know where he, if he developed it or if he got it from somebody before him, but he was one of the earliest uh, hydroponics researchers and, and he would have been there more than 20 years ago. He, did, he set up a lot of systems in the Middle East too. And um, see, we'll see that's pretty cool because it does the Middle East goes and in fact I can tell you that the guy that taught me his name is David Hill. And he now works for Canada International, but he used to be the state representative for South Africa and Kenya. Then he worked with a company in California in retail he hated and ran they, they did have an aqua a hydroponic lettuce farm which drove all the hydro stores, but he now has gotten out of retail and he's last I heard he was working for Canada nutrients. Uh, and that's where he's yeah. at now. 
That's who taught me. And I'm going to shut up now. I just wanted to bring that up because it sounds the same except for the aquaponics, but they're doing that now over there too. Yeah, but you know something? Uh, when you go from hydroponics, when you go from hydroponics to aquaponics, there's a that's a big uh, that's a big change. I mean, they don't those systems don't operate the same at all. For example, in a hydroponic system, uh, the pH is always going up. You have to put acid in there. In an aquaponic system, the pH is always going down. You have to put base in there. So just something like that. And the, the, the other thing about aquaponics is that you've got to worry about what you're going to do with the solids. Uh, solids are, are a big issue. Um, and um, you, you need to remove the solids before you get to the plants. Otherwise, they'll clog the plant roots and cause anaerobic zones. But as I was talking with Stephen this afternoon, the solids are very, very important because most of the uh, most of the phosphorus is in the solids. And um, so, another aspect we, we didn't do this. Okay, let me let me let me resume the UVI story just uh, just briefly. Um, we once we got the four fish tanks and the and the six hydroponic tanks, um, we we. We uh, could produce uh, about uh, about ten or eleven thousand pounds of tilapia a year. These tanks are ten feet in diameter, and I can't remember how much lettuce we could produce, but uh, we produce a lot of lettuce, and uh, we produce many many crops. Um, and then we what we did is well we had an early commercial scale system, then we um, upgraded that to the last uh, to a better. Um, commercial scale system. And then even when we had the better one, we did, we did a lot of uh, refinement on that. We did a lot of changes. One of our issues was heat. So we did a lot of things to reduce the heat of the water in the water and with shading, for example, and um, trying to dissipate heat from the airlines and so forth. And uh, anyway, this happened. We got this final commercial scale system up about 19 years into my being there. And then we started offering uh, training programs. I think in 1999, we started a training program. That was actually, the internet wasn't really very big at that point. So we didn't get too many people coming. But um, I think we had about 17 people the first year we offered it. And late, later on, and we only had a limited size classroom. Later on, they made a conference room. And one year, we had 92 people take our, our short course. Altogether, we had uh, 566 people from 55 countries. And 45 states and U.S. territories come down to the Virgin Islands to take our short course. It's still going on. Um, Don Bailey is the person that's still there, and he's still offering the the course. And a lot, he's still getting um, maxing out on the number of enrollees. He um, only can accept 20 people, but he offers the course multiple times during the year. So the original system is down there. Um, we call it the UVI system, and I think. Um, it, I think it's pretty. I've given so many talks. I've, I think I've trained over a thousand people, and um, I think that it's um, basic. In it's basically the it's the design. Uh, you know, the, it's the um, the basis of the design of aquaponic systems today. But I think there's a lot more advances. I mean, but this was this was basically telling you the design indicated that we needed to take out the solids that we we needed to aerate a lot we aerated underneath the plants to keep the oxygen levels up in the roots and um we aerated a lot in the fish tanks and uh, we also did ratio studies so that we know we knew what the right ratio was and that that was probably 
a big breakthrough because in the beginning we had way too much fish for the plants and we got into toxic levels of nutrients over 2,000 milligrams per liter. Near the end there, we had, we had a ratio. We figured out the ratio is not has nothing to do with the fish. It has to do with the amount of fish feed that you put in there. So the, the size of the fish or the number of fish that you have is not important um, from the standpoint of put it, producing nutrients for the plants. You need to have in the range of 60 to 100 grams of fish feed per square meter plant growing area per day. Now, what's important for the fish is that when you stock these tanks, that in, within 24 weeks they can be up to a marketable size. So the, the, the stocking density is important from that from that aspect. But the main thing is that we had these six tanks that had staggered the fish production so that the nutrients going in the system were relatively constant, and we staggered the plant production so the nutrient uptake was relatively constant. So we had a very consistent uh, environment. And one thing we did is uh, we had some pretty high densities, um, but we weren't actually. One thing we learned is the, not to try to stress the fish and to not to um, not to you know go beyond what's um, what, what's safe for the fish. So we don't want the key point of these systems is not set a you know, world record for densities or production levels, but to not stress anything so that it comes down with the disease. And uh, well, we learned a lot of things. I'm trying to summarize. <laughs> I'm trying to summarize 30 years of work in a few minutes. One thing we learned. One thing. Let me tell you one thing that um, Wilson Leonard, my business partner, found out about aquaponics is that it was surprising. Our system was outdoors in the open, and uh, it was you know we're in the tropics where there's no cold season to kill insects. And uh, well, Charlie, Charlie, are you out there? <laughs> Uh, he's not online. Well, Charlie wasn't. Charlie hasn't joined us yet, unfortunately. Uh, Hopefully, he'll be joining us before the end of the episode here. Okay, Charlie was in charge of the biological control of the pest on the plant, so he could speak to this better than me. But we didn't really have too much pest pressures being out in the open. And um, what uh, what Wilson Leonard learned from a project that he did in New Zealand, they hired him to compare hydroponics with aquaponics. So he set up a standard hydroponic uh, system that the industry in New Zealand uses to raise lettuce right next to an aquaponic system. The, it, was, it was a nutrient film technique method and the, tray, the trays, the plant trays were right next to each other. One being fed with inorganic chemicals and the other one getting its nutrients, most of its nutrients from the fish. Uh, in, in his case, he was raising grass carp, and um, he put a big yellow strip, um, like about oh, eight inches wide, down the whole length of these uh, uh, NFT troughs. There was like one one strip for the aquaponics, one strip for the hydroponics. And when he looked at, and you know, these yellow strips are are sticky, and they can't capture uh, insects. When you looked at the uh, yellow strip above the aquaponics, very few insects were on it. When you looked at the yellow strip ab above the hydroponics, it was almost black with insects. And he was using the standard method that they use in, in New Zealand. So that indicates that for some reason, the uh, aquaponic plants can resist pests. And the main reason is that they're healthy. They're healthier. And a, a plant that's stressed like apparently those hydroponic plants were stressed, uh, they uh, 
when a plant is stressed, it creates more sugar and that attracts insects. So you don't necessarily have to have an insect problem if you have a really healthy plant. And I, I, I run across this so many times, even in the tropics, people immediately want to put up a greenhouse. And um, actually greenhouses will cause more problems. If you have the correct temperature outside, greenhouses will cause more problems than they're worth because once an insect gets in the greenhouse, there's no natural predators out there to control it and it'll run wild in the greenhouse. And then you've got to be ordering all these uh, uh, biological control insects like parasitic wasps and so forth. Uh, I've seen people, um, I won't name any names, but <laughs> that you have a perfect climate for raising plants outside and they go to work and put a greenhouse over it. A greenhouse is only for climates that are not perfect so that you can create, use the greenhouse in the, in the winter to create an ideal environment or if it's too hot in the summer to chill it and create an ideal environment. But if, it's, if you've got good temperature regime outside, you don't need a greenhouse. So that maybe that anybody want to discuss that? Seasonal. The 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 greenhouse shuts down in June, and then you start up and you have production starting in October, like you said. In the South, they use greenhouses to get through the winter and provide food when the conventional methods won't won't be available. And then really, they, everybody shuts down by the end of by the end of. Um, May and beginning of June, they shut down for two or three months, clean the whole thing out, and get ready for the fall. And the okay, that's that's okay, that's hydroponics. But you know something? That's when you have a rigid greenhouse. Uh, there's a lot of times in the south, if you're, uh, it depends on your degrees latitude and what the annual temperature regimen is. But you can you can put a cold frame, you can put a greenhouse frame over your growing beds, and when it gets starts getting cold in the fall, you just Simply cover it with a with a clear plastic membrane, and the greenhouse effect will warm the plants sufficiently that uh, you can still keep going with the plants all winter long. Now this this is not good for the northern latitudes because that's way too cold outside. But in in like in northern Florida or in Texas or Louisiana or something like that, you can simply. I saw this in Oklahoma actually. You probably don't even I don't even know if they're in business. It's called Inslee Farm, but he was raising chives, and um, he had his greenhouse covered in the winter in, in Oklahoma, near Oklahoma City, and uh, with just a clear plastic membrane. And then when the spring came, he took the membrane off and just raised all his crops outside. So these membranes are relatively cheap. So you have half a year greenhouse and half a year no greenhouse. When you start getting into really cold climates, then you need the rigid greenhouses and the, all the environmental control that goes along with that. I like that when, idea. When, that way, being open and then being closed on two different times of the year. And you're yeah, right. You can grow it'll grow like crazy. Just put just because you have a floor, you know, like a greenhouse floor in a system, they the, the plants go nuts without the plastic on there. You know? When I was in Jamaica, we did um, just thrip screening. We we had cold frames the same way that you would yeah. for, for hoop houses, and we just threw the, the the thrip screening on it, not to hold any heat or anything like that, but just to keep the bugs off, so I didn't have to use IPM and, 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 and as little IPM as possible. But and that's all we did was was curtains of thrip screening, and that's all we did because that's all we had to do. I didn't have to account for climate control, uh, just I like just you're like saying. Was it were you at, were you at altitude? Uh, we were at about three, uh, twenty, a little over two thousand feet, twenty-two hundred, twenty-four hundred, something. Yeah, that insect screen is. If you're at sea level, it gets, can get quite hot in there. Just, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so uh, if you're, I, I always tell people in tropics. In fact, I just had an inquiry. I had an inquiry last week from Saudi Arabia where there. I didn't know this, but there's mountain ranges in Saudi Arabia where you have ideal growing temperatures year round. Um, the only trouble is the mountains are about 600 kilometers from the population center, so selling the crop is a little problematic. And they, they have enough money to move in. It's okay. Well, they'll, they'll build a hyper train or something, I'm sure. These, these guys, not everybody in Saudi Arabia is, is rich. <laughs> oh, I know. In fact, the shakes are now, the shakes got shook down, <laughs> so they're not so rich anymore either. <laughs> um, um, but uh, so, um, uh, so you, you did a lot of work and a lot of early research on the exact numbers and PPM levels that you needed to achieve for aquaponics. Do you want to talk a little bit about why it is that aquaponics can, can achieve the same numbers of um, tissue mineralization density as hydroponics does? Uh, but at the same time, why it is that hydroponics takes much higher nutrient levels in the soil versus aquaponics, which we can use in, in most cases a quarter to half the numbers or even less um, to achieve those same nutrient density numbers in the tissue. Um, the study I, I posted was like 4% or something like that, wasn't it? was, I don't yeah. know, I know Charlie posted one recently. It was, a, it was a very low percentage, like especially of like potassium. Um, you know, it was it was significantly lower for increased growth or even the same growth. Um, it was, it was really interesting. I think he even talked about it last time he was on, didn't he see? Yep. Well, we uh, basically a hydroponic solution starts off at about 2000 milligrams per liter. And then, then it's nothing but uptake. So that's all the nutrient levels are always going down. They're not going down. We can start with an ideal balance, but the, um, as the nutrients go down, it gets a little bit out of whack, and the the, the balance uh, will eventually uh, become imbalanced. Basically, um, in an aquaponic system, you have because the, the the nutrients are being generated every day, you don't have to be at that 2,000 milligrams per liter level. Actually, we ran our system sometimes at 200 milligrams per liter, one tenth, one tenth. But uh, I think probably um, being around one fourth, 25% of the is, is would be okay. Um, so because you have nutrients generated every day, you have nutrients generated. I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows the exact all the pathways uh, through which these nutrients are generated. I, I'm sure fish give off some nutrients in dissolved form. A lot of them. Uh, probably come from sol solids that are quickly broken down by bacteria or mineralized. And um, Wilson, Wilson Leonard, uh, he's got a different design. Wilson, if you're not familiar with Dr. Leonard, uh, he has, uh, he, okay, he, he came on the scene after me, so he decided to go, our system, we have like an excess of nutrients and we discharge about about 5% of the system water on a weekly basis. Um, but uh, Dr. Leonard, what he did is he tried to set up a system where he didn't discharge any water or any solids. And what he has is he's got mineral, he puts the, the when he drains, takes the solids out, he puts all that water with the solids in it into, a, um, into another tank where he aerates it uh, continuously. 
And over about a month period of time, all those solids mineralize and turn into uh, the solids dis dissipate, and the um, minerals are left. And then he, uh, when he comes into work in the morning, he, he turns off the aeration, and while he's doing his chores, uh, all the solids settle to the bottom of the tank, and then he thinks. Let's say um, you're going to add uh, 10, 10 gallons of solids to that tank every day. Well, in the morning, he'll take out and decant 10 gallons of clear mineralized water and he'll pour it back into his aquaponic system. So he never discharges any solids and he never discharges any water except for the water lost through evaporation. So his system is probably the, the most closed system there is. Um, he... Um, what he uh, and what he does is he he uses lower levels of, of fish production and he does a little bit more supplement supplementing. But he wrote an article um, in World Aquaculture Magazine uh, a couple of years back. Um, I forget what the title is, but the gist of it is that um, if you're going to do aquaponics, you should be using uh, virtually all the nutrients you can from the fish that come from the fish and that's a roughly about 80 percent of the nutrients for your plants should come from the fish you have to supplement with uh, potassium and um, calcium and a little bit of iron but what's what some people do uh, and i'm not going to name any names but um, they go to work and they basically um, they they basically have systems that that they almost it's almost a hydroponic system they don't use very much they, they've undersized their fish so much relative to the plants or the or the feeding rate ratio is so low that they they, they have practically a hydroponic system and maybe they're only using 20 percent of the of the nutrients coming from the fish and uh, we would not consider that an appropriate uh, you know um, you know aquaponic system I've come across systems in Germany that um, what they do is it's a decoupled system and they use a, a microscreen drum filter to get rid of their solids and every they lose seven percent of the system water every single day so after about 13 days it's a complete water exchange and then they go to work and they put the they, they decouple it so the water coming from the fish goes into this big tank and then they they adjust the nutrient levels in the big tank and they go on a one pass through the hydroponics system. It's basically, what it is, is basically a recirculating fish culture system next to a hydroponic system, but they call it aquaponics. And it's a little bit deceptive. And um, also, you can tell if people are doing that by looking at the clarity of the water. If the water is tea stained, then you know it's an aquaponic system because that's tannic acid that's built up in the water. If it's crystal clear, it isn't. It isn't aquaponics. <laughs> it's it, it's a hydroponics being being passed off as aquaponics. And let me tell you the reason why. Uh, the reason why is that uh, 20 or so years ago, hydroponics was really popular, and uh, it's basically become you know nothing new. It's old, now it's an old hat and. Um, and uh, but aquaponics is a hot issue. So if you have a short course. You offer courses. You you can make more money off of the courses than you can raising the crops, and um, so they they advertise their systems as um, aquaponic systems, and they, they advertise the courses an aquaponic course, but it's really hydroponics disguised as aquaponics.
And this is one of the things that bothers us. <laughs> that's why that's why Wilson Leonard wrote that article. Would you say that decoupled falls into that? What are your thoughts on that? Because I'm a big, as someone that grows arguably some of the highest feeding nutrient level crops of anyone that's doing aquaponics, which is cannabis and fruit trees in terms of nutrient uptake per day, I can do that on a single loop without decoupling. The only reason why I can see decoupling is if you're going to do cold water fish, if I'm going to do salmon or Arctic char, yes, it makes sense to me to do to do a different temperature or different, or if I want to spirulina, yeah, it makes a difference to, to put a separate pH level for my, my decoupled, but uh, anything beyond those kind of things, it doesn't, to me, I can get the same level of achievement with less input and better results than, than even they can with a decouple in terms of yield. And I've proven that by the fact that every single major aquaponic cannabis company is doing single loop right now. So, and they're talking, the, the largest hydroponic or aquaponic production facility currently under destruction or under construction is in Canada right now. And it's over a million square feet and it's an aquaponic cannabis grow. Okay. Oh. And they're doing single loop. It's the biggest facility anywhere in North America right now. Uh, it's, it's a Aquilitas, I think is the name of the company. Um, and so no one's doing decoupled on that scale. Everyone's moving to single loop because it's less input. So I'd love to hear your 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 thoughts on that. Well, what what do you mean by single loop? That's a new term for me. Um. So so having the plants and the fish in the same system, whereas decoupled, where the the, the okay. plants are in a separate okay. system. Okay, single loop. We would refer to that as a recirculating system. Okay. Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, let me tell you that I'm not I'm not that experienced with the decoupled system because I never worked with the decoupled system, and um, but the key point i mean yes i agree that um there are some issues like uh, for example um i mean it could be nutrient issues that you need you're not getting you know that you need to have a separate um, nutrient you have to be supplementing with something that could be toxic to the fish like for example if you say the cold water fish they can't handle potassium very well and they can't handle nitrates very well so in those cases um you would um you might want to just use the system. You might want to um, divert some of the system water to that system to the plants and uh, have another loop within the plants. I'm not really that experienced with how it's how how to do that, um, but it, you know I'm sure there are applications. But the question, the main question is, of the are you utilizing all the plant nutrients, all the fish nutrients that you can, or are you discharging a lot of them? So what's the answer? Uh, so, so we actually do a combination of both vermicompost, since we we do all of our stuff with both uh, soil layer and an aquaponic layer. We talked a little bit about that on the phone today. Uh, uh, just quick disclosure: um, uh, me and uh, Dr. Rakosi got to speak for the first time on the ever uh, today on the phone, and we ended up having an incredible conversation. And um, I got to introduce him to the dual root zone stuff that we've been working with, and a bunch of other things. I'll, I'll save you guys the details. But um, with, with dual root zone, we do take a portion of our, our uh, production basically the first pull off of our filters is the thickest heaviest sludgiest stuff we take that and we feed it to our, com our vermicompost which is our worms and we, we use that for our soil layer we then take our second and third poles we we put that into our remineralization tanks which is a little bit more liquidy and a little bit more fluid and tends to work a little bit better for that application and and um, we remineralize that the same way that you're familiar with i guess uh, with the uvi model so it's kind of a hybridization. 
Well, you know, I was talking about Wilson's model. The UVI model is a little different than that. The UVI model is we have a clarifier which removes, um, and this is we remove about 50% of the solids through settling. Um, and these are the settleable solids, the heavy solids. And then the suspended solids, the finer solids, are removed in this uh, orchard netting or bird netting tank. Um, let me just. The, the solids, even though we have in our systems, we've had uh, clarifiers with uh, 60 degree slopes at the bottom of it, uh, conical bottoms. Uh, the sol after about two or three days, the solids won't settle out anymore because you get all this biological growth or biofouling on the sides of the tanks, and the solids just stick to it, and then they'll start decomposing and form big mats of solids that'll float to the surface. Um, so to get to uh, circumvent that, we put about 20 male tilapia fingerlings in the clarifier, and they are not fed, and they they scrape the sides of the tanks, and that dislodges the solids, which settle to the bottom of the cone, and we remove the solids like like three times a day by just opening a valve. So in a sewage treatment plant, they have automatic scraper bars to get over this uh, problem, and we use tilapia as our scraper bars to, to get the solids to settle out there. Uh, you have to be careful though that they don't get too big because then they become counterproductive because if they get big they stir up a lot of solids too. So after about 12 weeks we, change. we always use male fingerlings and we after 12 weeks we'll take them out and put another batch of smaller fingerlings in them. The orchard netting, the bird netting tank, it, I mean, it, it looks probably kind of unattractive but it's so many interesting things happen in this tank because the way we're removing solids there, we have these very thin black uh, plastic um, uh, mesh on the, we have like three quarter inch mesh uh, orchard. If anybody doesn't know what a bird netting or orchard netting is, what they do is they, it's a, a netting that they put over fruit trees when, as the fruits uh, become ripe and um, that keeps the birds from um, you know eating the fruit. So it's used in the, in the orchard industry. Anyway, we, we bunch it up in this tank and the solids will, will come out, the suspended solids will come out by the, not by settling, but by the process of interception, like the solids hits the plastic and, and, and then sticks to it, and absorption. Once it sticks to it, another solid hits it and it, it gloms onto that and all of a sudden you see like a crystal going on these uh, black plastic threads. Because the, because the threads are so thin, it's very easy to wash these things off. And so we have to clean these tanks once or twice a week. And we dump all the water when we're doing it. But our system is such that we, knew we need to dump about 5% of, of the water. Because once we decided we weren't going to dump that 5%, and we were just going to, instead of dumping the tank, we're going to put a little pump in there, and we're going to just draw those tanks down and reuse the water. And after doing that for about two or three months, we had the most horrible case of biofouling all over the system even four inch pipes or three inch pipes practically clogged up i mean they the the growth on the sides of these pipes uh, constricted the pipes and the water backed up and overflowed the fish tanks and the and we so we we needed to re be removing some of, of the dissolved organic matter from the system but let me tell you the the four things that happen in our in our um Orchard netting tanks, or we call them filter tanks. We first of all are removing the fine suspended solid. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that if you allow those solids to accumulate and you only clean it once a week, 
some anaerobic zones uh, develop inside the solids and they will remove excess nitrate, which is important if you're raising a fruiting crop. So the, uh, the frequency at which you remove solids can regulate the nitrate levels in the system. Uh, another thing they're doing is they're, they're mineralizing the solids, the bacteria in there are, we, you know, we take the solids out, but in the period of, uh, of a week or half a week, uh, we get partial mineralization, not like Dr. Uh, Leonard does, where he gets complete mineralization, we get partial. But that's important because it's, it's providing a lot of uh, uh, trace nutrients for the plants, this partial mineralization. And can can yeah. you describe the difference between partial and full remineralization? Because that's definitely a term that a lot of our listeners are not familiar with. Well, I mean, I mean, at the end of a week, there's still a lot of solids there, right? So we haven't broken down all the solids. So we're discharging some of the solids. Some of the solids, though, have been decomposed and, uh, in, and uh, the nutrients have been released. When decomposition occurs, the end product is carbon dioxide gas and water vapor. And then if there was a mineral in this organic compound, that's now released as an ion that can be absorbed by the plant. Okay? So that's... I mean that's what we that we would call that partial mineralization. Uh, we don't we don't complete we don't take we don't break down all the solids. Just you know, but we but it is important to break down some of the solids. Okay, and then the uh, final thing that it does, and this is something that most people well we learned the hard way uh, when we um, one time we decided well why are we worrying about putting in this clarifier and this filter tank. It's a lot of tanks. It's a lot of expense. It's, uh, it's difficult. It's not difficult, but it's a little bit time consuming to clean the, the filter tanks. It, it only takes about an hour to clean, to clean them in one system. But we put a, we put a, a microscreen uh, drum filter in there. And it, a microscreen drum filter, if you have, when you look at the effluent from a microscreen drum filter, you don't see a, one speck of silence in it. It's perfectly clear water. So we eliminated all the clarifiers and the filter tanks and we put the microscreen drum filters there. And then the, um, what happened is that we weren't removing the dissolved organic matter. You can't see it. Like if you put a teaspoon of sugar in a glass of water and stir it up, you won't see the, the sugar, but the, that glass of water is full of dissolved organic matter. And uh, the same thing applies with an aquaponic system. Well, what happened is that that's food. That's food for bacteria. So what happened is that the, as the water flowed down the growing beds, bacteria grew on the roots of the plants and formed this gelatinous growth, which absorbed this dissolved organic matter. So for the first out of 100 feet, about the first 50 feet were covered, the roots were covered with this gelatinous material, which slowed down the uptake of um, nutrients and oxygen and, and, and uh, also affected the plant growth. So but with this filter tank, for some, for some reason, there's we have a, our filter tanks. It's two filter tanks that are six feet um, long by um, two and a half feet wide, and we have the water runs down one, and for the sake of space, then it goes to the next tank and it comes back again. And so that's twelve feet uh, of length. And by the end of the 12, 12 feet, there's no solids in it at a, at a flow rate of fifty gallons a minute. And uh, so, um, and during that, that during that 
time that it's in there, there's bacteria in uh, attached again to this orchard netting that's absorbing the dissolved organic matter. So by the time the water flows through this 12 feet, there's no more dissolved organic matter and there's no gelatinous growth on the plant roots. Now, if you don't use the, the filter tank, uh, you would then need to install a biofilter after the clarifier to, uh, and in a biofilter, the if you've ever seen a biofilter where the water is flowing down uh, the length of the biofilter, like say a, a rotating biological contactor, the first part of it will be heterotrophic bacteria that eat the organic matter, and they're absorbing this dissolved organic matter, and then you get the, the bacteria that take up the ammonia and the nitrite. So, but the the filter tank does that. So the filter tank is doing four things: taking out suspended solids. It's um, you could de get denitrification to get your high levels of nitrates down. You can mineralize to get trace nutrients produced for your plants. And you can get your dissolved organic matter out of the water. Is, are you still there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is everybody shocked? <laughs> anyway, that's the, that's, the, uh, crux of the system. that's the crux of the system. And... Um, that that tank it looks kind of messy you see all the solids there and a lot of people don't want to you know clean it it's really easy to clean we we just open a drain and we take a we wrap up all we have a, a special thing to roll up the ocean netting and high high pressure water spray it takes all the solids off real easily you know they used to have these corrugated uh plastic media um, um i forget the, what they call them but uh and that the K one uh, was it cold? No, no, no. That, no, you're, no. Talk, you're talking about the moving bed, the moving bed yeah. bath. Before they used to have slanted uh, corrugated media in a big block plastic, and uh, you stack them up. You created a trickling filter usually. Or some people did it in a submerged like, form. Like a did. like a wet dry. Like the bio balls, uh, the bio balls. No, 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 no. This is one one solid block of stuff with uh, like a honeycomb, like a honeycomb. Um, uh, and there's little channels that the water flows through. It's at an angle, and so instead of settling, having to settle two feet, it only has to settle about half an inch to stick onto the plastic. It's a plastic sheets. This is sheeting, and it's all together. Um, I don't. I can't. You can't think of the name because I haven't even referred to this in 25 years. But the trouble with that is that there was one flat sheet of plastic and, and you can't get the solids. The solid sticks so hard to it. It's very hard to clean. Charlie uh, had experience with this at uh, Virginia Virginia State University. He, he had his first job in aqua, aquaculture there. Uh, I should say that Charlie worked with me for 13 years in the Virgin Islands. He, he worked a long time down there. and um, He was a good worker. You know, really, really happy to see him doing his doing his uh, work at the Santa Fe College. He, he said he'll be joining us here shortly. I just talked to him a, a couple minutes ago. Well, I might be running out of my, I might be running out of my data. Oh my sure, gigabytes. So if I all of a sudden you don't hear from Wait, me. that might be him. Who someone just joined us here. Uh, Richard just joined us. I'm not sure who that is. Okay. So anyway, get back to the decoupled. I'm not that familiar with it, and I can I can see that there's going to be applications for it, um, and um, where maybe you have to keep two nutrient regimes or two temperature oh. regimes or something like that. But the, the key point of it should be that you're using as much of the nutrients supplied by the fish as possible. Speak of the devil, there's Charlie. 
Yeah, I think I'm online. You are. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Jim. Hey, I've been listening for a while. You guys are having a great show. <laughs> okay. You got to tell us what's up, Jim. Tell us what you tell me what you're up to. I've got a little uh, echo on this line. I'm going to drop and try to reconnect. It's it, it, it's on um, Dr. Rakosi's end, I think. Okay. Yeah. So just don't talk quite as loud. It should work. Oh, okay. Am I talking too loud? Oh, no, no, not you. It just your microphone's close to your uh, speaker. So um, he just has to not be quite so loud when he talks. That's all. Oh, okay. Whatever. Yeah, I, I was catching that last part about these settlers. Um, Jim, if I remember, it was like a vertical tube settler. Yeah, vertical tube. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you and you had the experience with that, right? And you can vouch for the fact that they're not very good, right? Yeah, it takes a lot of water. Blue Ridge Aquaculture had those, and it would took a powerful force to clean those settlers off. Yeah. Is there anything new? Is there anything new out there for uh, getting solids out these days? Well, a lot of the guests here were, are using uh, the radial flow settler, I think, instead of the the settling clarifier. We actually use a combination of radial flow and then microbials. Uh, like we talked a little bit about lactobacilli. Um, actually, big thanks to to Marty for being one of the first people to figure that out. Um, along with the, the guys over at Kentucky State, uh, both of you guys around the same time discovered that. And uh, uh, Marty, do you want to talk a little about that? How you got started? Are you, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, we were using. Um, I was making labs as a part of the. <clears throat> Uh, which is a lactobacillus serum and um and so i was experimenting with that and i had put some of it um in my worm bin like the leftovers and stuff like that and uh, i just sort of poured it on top and also on top with some filter paper from my aquaponic system and i came back like two days later and it had like eaten it clean and i was like well that's kind of interesting and so i started adding some pretty regularly to my aquaponic systems and like checking the beds and finding i mean not uh just a, a breaking down a lot more of the solids um to the point where because i run low density systems i don't have uh, i don't have to remove <clears throat> solids nearly as often from um or even just loose material like you're saying the organic material it needs to get removed like from my media beds um you know, I just have to do it a lot less often, like, whereas I probably have to do it, uh, you know, like once every, you know, say a few weeks um, in some of my systems, <clears throat> you know, I'm doing it more like once every six months. So, um, but I, I add um, labs or Bokashi brand, some of my matting lactobacillus probably about once a week. Um, and then obviously the, through the red worm bin, I use that in the dual root zone. Um, you know, I would assume it's pretty well, the population's pretty well established throughout that soil layer as well. Um, so uh, <clears throat> just keeping it a healthy population of the system, I, I haven't had any anaerobic issues in any of my media beds, any of the bottom of the dual root zone pots. Um, I haven't had any like root rot, like even on like, the cover crop and stuff that I use or, you know, like anything, um, you know, everything just has extremely healthy white uh, roots. And um, that's just been a, a, a drastic difference from uh, from before, whereas without that, it would develop over time. You would get 
you know, anaerobic areas in the media bed specifically that would have to get cleaned out even with a siphon system and different things going. Like it seemed like eventually you would, you would have little spots where um, it would go anaerobic and it would, you know, you know like smell different and um, you would get unhealthy root systems or root rot or different things like that. And uh, ever since then, uh, I haven't had any issues with it at all. So um been doing a lot of ferments with it as well. So like uh, supplementing with um, fermented fruit extracts or plant extracts. So using lactobacillus in a ferment to extract uh, essentially minerals um, or nutrients to be able to uh, add them into the system in liquid form. And then I'll feed like Let's say, um, like I, one of the ones I do a lot is the sour plum that grows out here in front. We don't, you know, nothing really eats it. They just sort of fall on the ground and normally they just go to waste. So I gather, I have my kids gather up a bunch of them in, into a bucket and we do a big ferment with a, uh, like some Bokashi brand and um, let it break down over about a week or so and then uh, seal it up and be able to use it um, as supplement. Uh, in the aquaponic systems and all the solids go to the worm bin and uh, they really love to eat that up and really in increases the population a lot uh, in the worm bin I've noticed too is a lot. Uh, um, anytime I, I put in the solids from uh, one of those probiotic ferments, the, the population just goes crazy. <laughs> so I, I've, I've really uh, seen a lot of benefit from incorporating it on multiple levels in the garden. I have, a, I have a question is when, uh, why, why would you have once you inoculate a system wouldn't the popular because there's a lot of organic matter there wouldn't the lack of population remain relatively constant as long as they had food yeah they would it, um, the, the only thing that uh, that I the reason that I continue to add it is that um, I feel like it even though it can exist in aerobic zones, it reproduces better in anaerobic zones. So I, I wanted to sort of be constantly searching out any places that might be uh, anaerobic and dominating them until they're gone, and then their population would, would drop back down. But I do think that uh, there is a, a constant sort of baseline in my system, even at this point, if I stopped adding it, it would probably still be there, especially since I've, I add it to my red worm bin as well. Like I definitely think that now that I have a, a healthy baseline, I could probably drop off and, and maybe not do it as much as I do. But, um, you know, I, I bought a $20, $20 bag of it like two years ago. So I, I use it pretty sparingly um, when I do do it just because uh, it, it really doesn't take much. Um, you know, the population explodes pretty quick after you, you start that um, rehydration process. What's the name of the product that you buy? Is there a special name to it, or is it just lactobacillus? Um, I use uh, a Bokashi brand. It's a rice Bokashi brand from EM1. Uh, it's EM1 Bokashi brand, and then the company is Terragenics, is uh, who makes it. How do you spell Bokashi? Bokashi is B-O-K-A-S-H-I. And that's essentially a rice bran with a powdered molasses, um, some uh, powder uh, that gives you like a, 
you know, your macronutrients. And I think there's one thing in there too, but that, there's only like 40 ingredients to it, but it's essentially rice bran that's been inoculated with lactobacillus and then some uh, powdered, um, uh, some powdered molasses that uh, is just food for it to take off with. Oh, very interesting. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, Jim, this is Charlie. Uh, yeah. Do you have any experience with um, uh, microbial inoculation, like separate to mineralized fish waste or shrimp waste? I've seen some bioflock systems that are using inoculums to reduce that waste load. We uh, did an experiment once. Um, remember Cal when Kelly was there and uh, yeah, we did it. We we got a small business innovation research grant to test out these a, a, a range of these uh, bacteria um, in in our system. I think I think we had to replicate it, so maybe it was only three. But I can't remember what they were. But they're they're commercial products that are used in soil applications, and um, we tested three. I, I'm sure. I haven't thought of this in so many years. I can't remember the, what they were, but um, what the result was is there was no result. <laughs> uh, but probably because we didn't know how to apply it, or we didn't apply enough of it, or something. Because we had big systems; those those replicated systems are fairly big. You know, we might not have put enough of it in. But yep. uh, this lactobacillus is is a good idea. Yeah. Um, and you can you can make uh, you know you can ferment your own lactobacillus just from raw milk. Um, you know, relatively easily as well. So the um, the the brand that you get will provide you um, you know a few other macronutrients than if you just made uh, labs yourself. But it, it it's really easy to do. You can basically start with a rice wash, and you let it soak, and then you <clears throat> you can um, most people use like an airtight seal um, to be able to do it. But it only takes about two weeks or so. And uh, it, and you can harvest your own lactobacillus and uh, and be able to add that to your system as well. Well, that's yeah, that sounds good. That's um, that's an advance. That's a nice advance. Um, yeah. Well, not only that, I wanted to chime in real quick, and this is something that I, I sent to Charlie, and I, I've I told Dr. Rakosi about it, but I haven't sent him the article yet. But uh, in 2016 and again in 2017, they proved that lactobacilli also reduces um, uh, it, it eliminates E. coli, salmonella, and a whole bunch of other um, uh, negative foodborne pathogens, uh, specifically uh, not only through when it's watered in by the root system, but also uh, when it's used strictly as a cleaning agent over alcohol or other typical cleaning agents on your food processing areas. So it has a, a lot of uh, promise for the, the food, uh, even people doing vegetables, uh, not even doing cannabis or anything else, uh, as far as something that could actually give us an edge over some of these ev ever evolving uh, foodborne pathogens. Okay, that's another, another good thing. Here. Yeah, send that article. I'd be interested in seeing the article. Sure. Uh, I have a question for Charlie. Charlie, what's the status on the, what's the organic uh, situation? Um, what came out uh, as of January basically said that as of now and as of really the inception of the whole rules, aquaponic systems can be certified organics. Um, so there has been no change. Um, okay. If you do things still by the rules 
and you set your organic systems plan properly and you find the right agency, you still can um, certify your crops as organic. Okay. No change. Okay. Um, I don't believe cannabis, um, because it's not federally legal, I don't think there's any organic standard for cannabis. Is that right, Steve? Correct. Now, Canada, Canada is working towards getting a organic standard for Canada, but that's the only current nation that I'm currently aware of. I know Croatia may or I, I've heard rumors that Croatia, because they're one of the only EU countries, um, they're also working on an organic standard or at least their nation is uh again neither one of these are close to being finished but um again all these states now california has an equivalency one that they're kind of working on right now that they don't have implemented yet that would be similar or oregon marty do you want to speak a little bit on oregon's i know you know that one on oregon's what uh, organic cannabis standard or equivalent um they they have one i can't remember it's like clean green i think it is something clean like green that. that's it i couldn't remember so california also has clean yeah. green which is functionally really similar but because it's federally tied you have to use a different name for it because uh the feds won't touch cannabis yet now give them a year or two and hopefully the feds will come around there's uh, i just posted an article for those of you who are interested on the aquaponic cannabis facebook group uh that has the uh, uh latest article about the federal government sending out a survey to a bunch of people uh, and asking them what they think needs to be uh involved in the regulations uh, which is a step in the right direction it means they're working on it it means someone got hired to actually look into that so this is good news for all of us it doesn't mean anything's solved but it means they're working on it so Thanks, Steve. Yep. I, I just, I also wanted to say, as we started talking about solids breakdown and the way we used to manage them and at UVI and the way maybe trends are heading these days, um, I do want to remind everybody that's listening that that UVI system was a, a very heavily stocked system. And I think that system alone was getting somewhere between 30 and 40 pounds of fish feed every day. So it's much different than many of our listeners are, are used to dealing with. And when you're putting that much fish feed in the system, it's a huge amount of solids that must be addressed. Can, can you um, talk about, uh, say, say that system versus Ken's system, which you've had a chance to see and, and you've taught at that facility and everything. Do you want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the design differences and maybe some of the how, how the UVI system has evolved to become even better than and, and then originally was, or maybe not even that design, but, but how, how that's, you know the original design has evolved from where it first began because uh, you two guys together help form that so i'd love to ask the two of you that question charlie charlie can i don't know who, who ken is uh, yeah let me let me start with um he's just talking maybe the evolution and ken or uh ken armstrong from ouroboros is a farm we were at recently but i would say that uh, the main reason people started uh evolving the system um, and I would probably put Nick Savadov up there at the top of the list is because we, we were in an outdoor environment. So when you move indoors, you've got to maximize the production in that space. So I think that's what drove um, almost all of the decisions to change the, the design a little bit. And then the second would be the solid waste management. So trying to keep it in on farm because of uh, Permitting, for instance, uh, you know, discharging from your facility is, is really going to ban a lot of aquaculture facilities from even getting off the ground in the U.S. So looking towards zero dis discharge systems 
Um, and then also the value of that sludge. People start to realize there's a lot of money. If you look at all the UVI economic analysis of these uh, systems, we never included the value of the sludge that was being discharged. Uh, we gave that away at UVI and we did some soil fertility trials. Um, we started doing some trials with um, dewatering that solid waste, um, but we really didn't do a lot to mineralize it and put it back in the system, as Jim said. But I think those are some of the trends that made uh, other growers start evolving the system. And as Jim said, you know, um, he looks forward to seeing people advance these systems. And there are obviously advances to, to be made. And all, I think most of us here, we're involved in teaching in some aspect. And I try to inspire the new generation now to take what, you, what we've learned. We can catch you up pretty quick. And now take it to, to advanced stages and let's see where we can go with it. Uh, um, go ahead. I'd love to hear a little bit more about specifically about how uh, in regards to his design, we're incorporating 30 to 35 percent of the system volume being media beds incorporation with this, the the same level of, of volume of media of uh, DWC that you guys had and how that affected the water chemistry because he's down to five to ten uh, grams of food uh, per square meter and you guys were at 40 or 50, correct? 60 to 100. Yeah. 60 to 100. So, so 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 he's significantly lower and i'd love to you, you've actually seen the system in person i'd love to, to hear you speak on that yeah i think one thing that can drive that ratio down is he's feeding trout so he's feeding a higher protein fish feed than we were uh, we were in the 30 to 32 percent range so anytime you bump up your uh, your protein level that's going to reduce that feeding rate ratio um and then uh you know i think he leaves his uh, nutrients in a bit to mineralize. And I didn't catch the uh, the whole process, but I believe he's also doing some offline mineralization and adding nutrients back to the system. Is that right, Ken? I mean, Steve? Yes, he does do offline remineralization. So he's kind of doing a combination of offline remineralization along with the filtration that he has and the media yeah. beds. So for all those reasons, you know, higher protein feed, putting the nutrients back into the system, that's the kind of stuff Wilson Leonard was showing um, by a closed loop system, zero discharge. He also, I believe, uh, lowered that ratio. Is that right, Jim? Uh, yeah, I think I think he's got a much lower ratio. Yeah, I mean, um, and he produces only about um, I think he only produces about twenty five percent of the amount of fish we produced. So and I think that's the case with um, Ouroboros as well. I don't think they're geared up to the the type of fish production that we had. Um, I'd have to confirm that with Ken, uh, but I don't think he's growing as much fish as the UVI system was. Yeah, what, you guys have vastly different um, plant to fish ratios. What what so, Wilson's idea was is that uh, you make most of your money off the off the plants. So why why not skew it more towards the plants than what? Well, what I'd love to see is someone do a low nutrient system say a, a lettuce system and i teach this in my classes uh, say a lettuce system it doesn't require really high nutrient levels or other there's other crops that fall into that category and then do a tropical fish breeding system because if you did that you could crank 10 times the amount from the, the fish than you ever could the plants but no well, one's doing that you know i i calculated once um, with red sword tails um that um you could you know we could produce uh i i think our system we um we could produce well this is an earlier stage i i calculated that we could produce like forty eight thousand dollars from the, the fish side with by raising red sword tails 
so uh, yeah, you can if, if um, you, you could flood the market back basically with one aquaponic system. Yeah, and, and that's something I often tell people that go into the cannabis industry is, look, you, you want your fish, your temperature for your cannabis plants, for your aqua, your aquaponic system for, for cannabis to be around 68 degrees. It gives you maximum nutrient availability and maximum oxygen availability. And tropical fish love 68 to 72. You'll get maximum growth speed out of those tropical fish, and you can raise plecos that go for you know, a couple hundred bucks after a year or two of growth, you can raise all kinds of tropicals, even even guppies or plecos or platy or guppies or platies or even even the high turnover stuff. You can get such a high rate for you can get so much more money, and you have an aquaculture license or a pet trade license, depending on what category and what state you're in, which generally are eight hundred dollars or less per year. Or I can get into the food trade and deal with a meat processing license and the headache of all that, or an aquaculture license, which in certain states can be more complicated than others uh, over a pet trade license and I, it's less licensing it's less inspections it's less regulatory issues and it, it allows me to turn a profit better especially for cannabis people that already have to deal with a mountain and and and, and a small army just to get their cannabis license to begin with dealing with a whole other second mountain and, and army to deal with that you have to then overcome just to get a license and, and deal with that whole separate regulation not to mention the additional cost a meat processing license looking at twenty to forty thousand dollars just to make sure that you have all your compliance all of your regulatory stuff covered and make all your paperwork filed properly between your your, your whoever you file you know consult with and then and everything's done it, it, it's a ballpark it might be slightly over but it's, it's around there or I can get a pet trade license for $800 or $125, depending on your state, and immediately get, get going and not have to deal with any of the headache. You know, one thing you could raise that's uh, quite practical is koi carp. Um, you know, get, buy, get small fry and then raise them up to a, to a, a large size for decorative ornamental ponds. Um, and they can take really cold temperatures. You know, there's no temperature issue with them. One thing you have to worry about with guppies, though, and the, and the, the, the live bearers is that if they get out into your uh, plant tanks, we did this in the beginning. We had uh, we had a bloom of, um, of zooplankton in our in our tanks. Uh, we had uh, ostracons and uh, um, oh, I can't remember the other thing we had. But the um, we and actually they didn't. We put in fish, uh, ornamental fish. We put guppies in and sartails in to control the zooplankton, and they did a good job of that. But the trouble is they reproduce so much, and then after they've eaten, consumed all the fish, all the food, there's no more food, so they're picking around on the plant roots, and they're causing incidental damage. And they're also opening up, uh, you know, they might be knocking off root hairs and so forth, and they might be opening up the plants to infection. In fact, before we did that, we never had any pythium problems when we brought in those ornamental fish um, and uh, they controlled the zooplankton blooms. But um, then after that, we had pythium for the rest of our careers there. So uh, be careful about that. Uh, and, you know, so uh, I, I recommend that you, um, you, you can raise, if you're doing deep water culture, you should raise ornamental fish in those tanks, but do egg layers because they don't reproduce as much and they, they won't explode like guppies. If you have, we ordered a hundred pair of guppies, and within no time at all, we had a hundred thousand guppies in those tanks, and they didn't have any food. Yeah, I think also. Go ahead. 
we've had really good luck with uh, the crystal shrimp and red cherry shrimp uh, in the DWCs without them actually turning and feeding on the plants. They're they're pretty strict detrivores slash algivores, and um, that's the only thing that we found. But again, when we tested with guppies and other live bears. We had similar results to what you had. Uh, go ahead, Charlie. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to add a couple comments. Um, Steve and I taught a class recently, and Steve really brings a lot of that information to our classes about different options. So I think that really makes our, our classes valuable to have that. And I think that it's a great opportunity. I think we also have people who have different goals. So I personally got into this because I wanted to be a fish farmer to grow protein for humanity. So uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, we'll, we'll always have people who want to grow a food fish. Um, and then my point there is I'm not sure of the volatility of the aquarium trade, um, but when the shit hits the fan, everybody still has to eat. I'm not sure if they're all going to eat guppies and mollies and platies or uh, very expensive algae eaters even. Um, so that's why I think that we're going to see mostly aquaponics sticking with, um, with the famous food fish that we see now. I think the I think the aquarium industry is well from when I when I was young it's gone down considerably because everybody is looking at their iPhones now and uh, computer screens. Right. Back then you were looking at your fish tanks. Your fish yeah, tanks. I think so too. <laughs> you know, I walked I, just the other day. I don't know where, where was this. I was uh, oh, I forget. I, I flew in a couple of days ago and uh, I saw I walked by a store and it looked like they had an incredible fish tank. And I had I just stopped and had a look again, and it actually was a computer computer that they had facing the window, the storefront window. <laughs> it was it really faked me out. I thought it was an aquarium. I, I did see a um a, a interesting way to make money with these ornamental fish one time when I visited Jim in Thailand. I went to a big uh, market, Chattachuk Market, and there's probably it must be an acre of animal trading going on, and on the back wall was it. There was a big rowdy crowd back there for some reason. Of course, I had to go see what was the rowdy crowd. And I looked back and there was dozens of uh, fish tanks with the beta fish, the um, Siamese fighting fish. And sure enough, they had uh, guys throwing money betting on which fish was going to fight to the death. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's legal in the U.S., but uh, we could push the limits. There's probably no law against fighting fish on the books yeah right so aquapong association is going to start a new uh no, there I'm just kidding. one of the east west east west competitions yeah we could have different uh we could do a championship for each state and then they go on to nationals <laughs> awesome so what charlie said about the the, the feeding the fish because that's kind of how I look at it. It's I'm setting up for being able to feed myself and the community more. I mean, that's why I'm kind of into it. I, I found out that with growing food, I, I grow so much food. I got food that gets wasted. Now we're doing all these, uh, you know, the composting and stuff like that, you know, for different projects. Yeah. I'm, I'm more about, I'd love to feed the community and I see that, but I also see Steve's point. Yeah. You can actually have a viable business you know to, to if you can set up the infrastructure first you know to build your to, to sell fish to the like the fish trade but i also i also i'm with charlie where i want to grow food to eat yeah so i just you know that's well, what i was as mind. long as you realize sometimes it's more you'll you'll provide far more food for people if you just grow the little fish and then buy the meat and then give them that sometimes it's well it, you create a job <laughs> you know you know 
But that's only if you have someone to sell it to you, right? Oh, but yeah, no, no, I know. I'm with Charlie, though, to grow food fish when we can. But just it's something that I feel is a huge untapped market in aquaponics specifically that it has a lot of potential that no one's really going after. And I think um, where you actually could have clientele. If you're in the country, that's probably not going to work too well. But, you know, if you're in a city, a big city, yeah, I think then you can target uh, as long as you can get into any kind of pet stores. I mean, that's the whole thing, getting into the fish or even just a, just a wholesalers, you can always mail them across the country. There's, you can get a, deal, a wholesaler license for, for $300 in the United States. So, Let me, let me give you an, exa an example. This is not with aquaponics. This is with a, a recirculating system. And this is when I first uh, got to um, Virgin Islands in the early 1980s. Uh, I went to a conference in Los Angeles, and there's a fellow who's my age now. He's, his name is Dallas Weaver. And he had a PhD in civil engineering, and he set up in his garage these uh, fluidized sand filters, and he raised huge numbers of feeder guppies. And, um, and he was um, selling, and he, he was strategically located in Los Angeles where the feeder guppies had to come in from either Florida or, Hong, or uh, Singapore or Hong Kong, but he was right there. And, and, you know, a lot of doctor's offices and stuff have these fancy Oscars and other other attractive fish. And uh, just, there's a big demand for feeder guppies, you know, to feed these fish with guppies. And I think he was making something like close to $50 a pound for his feeder guppies. And in his garage back then, he said that he was, he was uh, grossing $250,000 a year. But but he, he was unique because he had incredible densities and he had these incredible fluidized sand filters and he knew how to design all this because he was a civil engineer but he was strategically located and he could you could get incredible price for on a pound basis for these guppies wow well there's Man, another, cool. maybe think of another target market would be um your, your um your bait and tackle shops that are everywhere you know, yep. The other thing too, uh, I used to read um, or raise live betas and discus actually, and get pretty ludicrous profit margins on both of those. I was getting two hundred and fifty dollars a piece for fry that were a little over an inch long for betas. Wow. At one point for the, some of the exotic varieties, so you know you can get you know really ludicrous margins depending on how you set up your your aquaponic system and again uh, fish producing nitrogen as long as they can tolerate the nitrate levels that you're at and, and they're happy and, and they're going to be healthy doesn't matter what species you can have thousands of guppies or you can have tilapia or trout you know they'll they're produced the same yeah now some of the research that we did a bunch of is uh, herbivorous fish versus carnivorous fish and how that translates into uh, nutrient output and we found that the carnivorous fish with the higher protein input like charlie was mentioning earlier have much um, more nitrogen output whereas the herbivorous fish have much more uh, phosphorus output and tend to be better for flowering crop systems mm. that's interesting yep I had a couple of more comments on the aquarium fish is, um, you know, often in, in aquaculture, if there's a fish that's a high value fish, uh, it's a reason why they're hard to culture. Um, whether it's a breeding life cycle that we haven't broken or very hard to do in captivity, or you have to culture live feeds um, because they're not going to take onto pelleted diet. So now you're culturing other animals to culture this animal. 
Um, and then obviously you guys, if anybody's looking to do this, you want a hardy fish that can take the high stocking rates that Jim was talking about. Um, I had a friend recently looking to do a very high value cichlid and we brought eight of them in and kept them for half a year or so. And as I started looking into it to get a breeding pair, we needed an animal that was about three to five years old. And the breeding pair needed about 500 gallons for two fish. <laughs> um, so a lot of considerations getting into aquarium fish. Good point. Yep. 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 They can definitely be far trickier than uh, the normal fish to breed. But again, that's where the profit margins come in. That's right. That's hey, right. Uh, is, are there any new species of fish that are, are going commercial besides our standard trout and tilapia? Um, I, I keep my eye on that saw guy, that walleye cross. Um, Jim's from Wisconsin and, uh, it's probably the most popular fish up there. A lot of people talk about walleye and perch, um, but I think we're going to have to do more work with the hybrids to get better uh, disease resistance, I guess, faster growth rates. So uh, I, I would be interested in looking at the saw guy. And then now we're seeing barramundi is kind of uh, spreading across the U.S. and into Canada now, too. Personally, you've had a lot of great luck with Paku. I think Paku is a really big untapped fish as far as ludicrous growth rate and really good meat. And there's, I think, two out of three local farms here are raising catfish as their aquaponics fish. You know, catfish, catfish never did well in the circulating systems, though, too. They're, very, they're quite prone to disease if you're using a channel catfish. If you use something like a walking catfish, like a clarius, they're much hardier. I'm pretty sure they're channel catfish or bullhead catfish. I don't remember one of the two. I don't remember. Quick note on that, we've noticed as well, the lactobacilli made a night and day difference with the catfish, even when we netted them and transferred them between tanks, which often you guys know will kill a couple of your catfish every time. Uh, we, we didn't have the deaths. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I just know that there's three of them here locally in the valley that I've been to, and two of them run some kind of catfish, but I, I didn't ask them to specify. But I would I would say you know it's either either bullhead or channel cat. Yeah, it's probably channel catfish, and I do see people occasionally will have success. They'll have these fish in there that they don't touch for years. You got a big catfish in your tank, um, but I'm I I'm with Jim. Uh, I usually recommend not to do catfish because they're not adaptable to tank culture. And sure enough, I would say. Three quarters, at least, of the people that I tell don't do catfish. They do it, and then they come down with disease issues. You know, if, if, you're, if you're starting off, if you're starting off and you're new to aquaponics, your best bet is to go with tilapia. That's the the most yep. the, the hardiest fish, the most tolerant fish. And if you want to later on go to barramundi or some other species, then but learn it with learn it with tilapia first. And not outrageous breeding. Uh, you know, tank needs or anything like that, like re relatively easy to breed. Uh, well, yeah. you know, tilapia is easy to breed, but if you're, um, if you're, it, it doesn't, you can buy, you can, there's, there's hatcheries in the United States that you can buy sex through versus uh, male fingerlings. And um, there's kind of a rule of thumb in the commercial industry that if you're producing like one to 200 tons of tilapia a year, you're better off buying the fingerlings if you're producing like 400 tons, then you can look into a breeding program. But it takes too much time to, uh, if you're doing a, a grow out operation, it takes too much time to do all the procedures for breeding. 
So I would I would not even consider breeding. I would just buy them. You know, there's there's a couple there's a few rep, very reputable uh, hatcheries. And ask Charlie uh, offline which ones those are, and uh, and uh, I would go that way. I was, I was speaking more to the Charlie shit hit the fan scenario. It, it would it's another one of those uh, that you, you can you can breed a lot of it, and uh, you know it's a it's a good protein fish. Yeah, I. I, I um, I also think a lot of people online listening to this program, they, again, probably sm starting small, running small systems. And I see a lot of people with a, a couple aquariums over on the side with a male and maybe two or three females. And that's a fine way to get yourself a free uh, number of fry. But as Jim and I uh, usually teach commercial systems, um, as he's talking 100 tons of fish, uh, these are big facilities. So um, once, once you go up into commercial, I would agree. Uh, to take yourself out of the breeding uh, program, unless you're getting some income on selling fingerlings and fry, uh, which is another good market. There's a lot of people want to get into aquaponics, so why not be that small tilapia supplier? Um, most of my commercial suppliers, they only want to sell me 3,000 fish at a time minimum. Uh, but all those things to consider. And you also tilapia is, um, is not legal in some states. So like here in Oregon, for instance, you um, you you have to go through a pretty rigorous um, permitting process just to be able to have them here. When I asked about it at the county, um, you know, it, it was <laughs> I, I didn't have a lot. They didn't have a lot of information on it other than they knew that I. I had to get some kind of permit and it was, I don't know, it just seemed like it was a, kind of a runaround as opposed to some of the other ones. And, and ultimately for me, like since my primary interest was growing medicine, um, you know, I just ended up going to the pet store and getting some koi and some goldfish. And, you know, that's just pretty much what I've done. I did do some, um, uh, what was it? A couple of um, uh, were trout that we had for a little while outdoors. <laughs> and we we raised them for about ten months or so before it got uh, really hot, and then harvested those, and uh, it went relatively well. But again, that's all small home system stuff, you know. Like like Charlie was talking about, it's not you know, it's night and day difference. But I do think that a lot of people listening, like you're saying, are are the you know small home grow, you know, wanting to start a system. And and uh, if you're just starting out, we talk about this a lot. You know, if you're just starting out, I highly recommend just going to the pet store buying some goldfish and uh, getting your system established and learning some stuff. And, uh, and if you're, you know, just like anything else, if you're thinking about scaling up to commercial, then, you know, just take those steps that make sense and, and learn as you go. Um, I, I definitely would, uh, <laughs> would, would shy away from, uh, you know, swinging for the fences in, in a situation like, uh, like trying to, to farm fish like Steve was talking about. Like he he has extensive experience in uh in the trade. So it's a little different for him to talk about, I think. Oh, I love I love it. I had when I worked at aquaponics source, I had multiple people say, Hey, I built a twelve thousand square foot aquaponics system and what's iron and how do what's pH and how do I fix it? <laughs> but they have they have, you know, 60,000, 70,000 gallons of system. No idea what either one of those things are. I've I've had that ha call happen to me three separate times. Yeah, or I've received you know an order of five hundred tilapia or 
and now 400 of them are dead because you know it's i've never raised anything you know yeah so 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 on that call let, let me ask this charlie and and dr Rocosi, what what are the craziest at maybe top three or top five hey this is going on in my system i think the other one that i can add is i've had three calls from australia asking me what the level of uranium or or um or radon is acceptable in their uh, water which is also an hysterical question huh. um i can throw out a couple and like get i'll let jim have a couple minutes to think about it um i i had a, a client uh one year having problems with their ammonia um and this may have been at a time jim and i were in communication helping somebody um but the system seemed to work fine for a long time uh, everything was running well and when when there's a water quality problem i tell my students you have to put on your detective cap it's something that you're overlooking or you did wrong you're feeding out of ratio um but again the system had been running well um, but this group was um i think we determined once that they were uh, when they were cleaning their rafts um they were bleaching their rafts and you're clean you're bleaching both sides of the rafts including the underside where all your biofilm was um so a simple you know suggestion where you know don't do that just scrub off the top of your raft lightly get your raft right back on the water surface to preserve your bacteria that that saved that facility a lot of time and a lot of money um, and then the other one i want to mention is a lot of people the opportunity in urban settings to get into a, a building, uh, maybe a cheap lease, uh, maybe somebody's got something that they're they're given for a dollar on a on a short term lease, and so you can get in these facilities and build up. But if that lease isn't a long term lease, that landlord has the right to pull that lease anytime they want. And I've seen a facility get up and established, um, start their marketing, teaching some courses, and then they got a two week notice to vacate their facility. So uh, I always caution people about that and to take care of that lease. And I don't have a third one on top of my head, but I always caution everyone to make sure they understand that what their source of water is before they jump into this. If you're going big scale, uh, you want quality and you want quantity. So, um, you know, I've seen people buy property and then have their water analyzed and realize they can't use it for any kind of aquaculture. Those are a few things. The other good one that I remember is I had someone ask me when I was working in the pet trade if they could legit pleasure themselves into a fish tank to feed newborn fry. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> with a straight, one. like a hundred percent serious with a straight face, was was not joking at all. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. I I got a couple. Um, <laughs> one one was actually not aquaponics. It was uh, we had a bioflock system, and this was a woman on another island in the Caribbean. And uh, we spent you know, we had a bioflock system that was a two hundred thousand gallon tank. And uh, so anyway, she spent the money to build this tank. Uh, she ordered the uh, like four uh, big. Uh, vertical lift aerators and um, I went I, I took several trips to, to visit the facility and when it was done um, the um, she harvested fish after about eight months and they were really small I said why are they so small and, and uh, I said are, are you feeding them uh, you know this amount of feed every day and she said no she said feed is expensive you don't know anything about business I'm not feeding them hardly anything <laughs> 
couldn't, I couldn't believe she had a PhD in a, in in a accounting or something like that. <laughs> Don't put anything in there. Fuss too much. Another another one that's a sad story, and this is a this is a really true story. This was in um, uh, there was a social program in uh, Philadelphia, and they had a million dollars worth of uh, funds to build a aquaponic system with basil, and um, they hired a consultant that was advertising online, and um, he designed wrote a big proposal and designed this system and everything like that, and there was a you know a pretty thick a proposal and a lawyer sent it to me and he said can you review this for me and uh, he said and I said but he didn't say anything about paying me to, to review it you know would have taken maybe half a day to sit down sit down there and, and go over the system and I called him and said well are you are you going to pay me he says no we only have enough money in the budget for one consultant that's the one we hired <laughs> I said well you can't, you can't go into a doctor's office and ask for four hours of time or or into a lawyer's office. And so I said, if you can't pay me, I'm not going to review it. So I actually didn't even open the envelope. I sent it back, and I had to pay $3 for priority mail to send it back to the guy. They built the system, and it turns out that consultant didn't know a thing about aquaponics. And um, uh, Don Bailey and I were working on a system at Rutgers University, and uh, Don was up there by himself once, and he went over to to view the finished system. And uh, I asked Don, "Well, how was it?" As well, if, if they would start, if they would bulldoze it down and start over again, maybe it would work. But, but this guy just had he had airlift pumps all over the place. He had a a net separating the fish component from the plant component. A net, not a wall, not screens, you know, just a net. It was horrible. And they never actually, and then you know what they wound up doing? They blamed it on me because I, they said, well, suppose they didn't review the proposal. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway. Um, I, re I remember both of those uh, stories, Jim. I was there during those times. Um, another one that everybody here is going to make this mistake one time in their in their fish career, and I tell my students, and I do see it still, is that if you don't take both ends of your pump and your water hose out, you're going to get a back siphon after you leave your facility, and you'll empty tanks right onto the ground. Um, we saw that before at UVI. I've seen it other times in my career. Um, yeah, we had employees at a aquaponics source flood then flood our lab and then Leslie our neighbor's unit. So <laughs> <laughs> thankfully yeah, we could usually then, mitigate that with a bag of lettuce and basil and usually uh, staved off their anger. Yeah, and I think most of your listeners, uh, especially if they've stuck around this long tonight, um, have an understanding of aquaculture. Uh, but we all know that uh, when we shift the pH up uh, by adding our base additions. Um, we're also shifting the ammonia into a more toxic phase. So I remember one time at UVI, we had a fingerling system. Uh, we probably had 50,000 fry and fingerlings in this system. And one of the technicians came in after a weekend where nobody had checked the pH or the ammonia levels. pH dropped rapidly. Um, he added the base, the calcium hydroxide. And as it went into all 12 tanks, it instantly shifted that ammonia to the toxic form. And the fish just dived out, and we killed every fish within probably five minutes. 
But before they die, they all jump out of the water. It's like a, it's like they're That's right. Yeah, and and you know the p, you know that pH can go from seven down to four point five in just a matter of a couple of days. So you really got to be on top of that. That's right. That's why I'm a big uh, proponent of uh, maintaining alkalinity and making sure you're testing alkalinity as well because that helps prevent that that sudden crash. Well, you, but you want your alkalinity to be in a, a in a solid form that can buffer the system, so that the pH exactly can, yeah, buffers. The yeah. Yep. Steve, yeah, why was, don't you, Steve, why don't you talk to uh, Dr. Ricosi here? Um, so, uh, Jim, again, people kind of take our our advice. They've run it for years, and now I'm seeing some changes in the way people manage their systems. And Steve is kind of adamant that stop using KOH. Um, and instead using more uh, more products that are, are designed more to increase the alkalinity, not just a sudden shift in pH. Um, I, I would love to hear you guys talk about that a little bit. Sure. So I've actually run a bunch of organic studies on organic hydroponics and how in organic hydroponics, their main goal is 100% stability, maintaining it as stable as possible alkalinity and pH and not letting that shift because that's what those microbes want in order to be maximum efficient for remineralization of whatever it is they're trying to remineralize. Uh, in our case, we're trying to remineralize fish waste. In some cases, they're using um, cow manure, or human manure, or chicken manure. It varies. Pig manure, uh, pig manure is very common right now. We're trying to do a lot of work with it because there's a lot of pig manure um, uh, for, for food production. Uh, so uh, if you take those things, and, and that's where this research came from, and they discovered that when alkalinity goes below, uh, I believe it was 30 parts per million uh, or 28 parts per million, somewhere in that range, it cuts bacterial replication in half. So if I'm using something that is uh, like a KOH or, or a cal um, or, or a calcium hydroxide, I'm not getting that extra additional buffer. The, the, the yes, I have the hydrogen ions, which helps in the, and that will give its own buffer capacity to a lesser extent, but it's not the same as calcium and it's not, or um, silica, for example. I'm a big proponent of, of potassium silicate uh, for, because it, again, it provides a more stable, uh, pH change. I use both of these when I worked a lot with planted aquariums for the same reasons that we use them in aquaponics. Well, um, is are you talking about again having it in a solid form that's going to dissolve slowly and keep a steady pH? Yes, so these are all powdered forms. Um, I like to use potassium bicarbonate or calcium carbonate or um, a, a really fine powdered dolomite will also work or um, potassium silicate are the pH ups that I like the most. Potassium silicate and calcium carbonate being my go-tos. Well, what, what we had though is we had a base edition tank. We know our system was 29,000 gallons or 110 cubic meters. And we had a base edition tank uh, that slowly uh, we would add like a thousand grams of either calcium um, um, hydroxide or calcium hydroxide into this base edition tank, and it was slowly um, drip into the system. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, there was a real a trickle of a flow into the system into a sump, which immediately pumped the water to um, 8,000 gallons of water, so there was no fluctuation in pH at all. Our, our pH was extremely stable. Uh, it would, if it would go down, it would go down like a tenth of a part per day, uh, and then maybe two days later we would add some more. So we had a basis to keep the pH stable. pH was a big issue in the beginning because we didn't know where to put the where to put the base because everywhere we put it, 
you put it in the fish tank, you've got a hot zone where you've got really high pH. The fish swims through that, it'll, it'll, it'll burn its gills. And if you put it in the hydroponic tank, there'll be a plug flow of high pH that'll hurt the damage to roots. But because we have this base addition tank just trickling the, the you know, the high, you know, it's like dosing. It's like a dosing thing, but we didn't have an automatic doser. But it slowly, it's slowly added to the system. So there is really, Charlie, don't you agree that we didn't really have much fluctuation in pH? Um, you, you know, because we maintained and we, we were always on top of it, um, I think what Steve's alluding to is more uh, keeping it um, uh, very stable over time. As you said, um, sometimes it could rapidly drop from seven down to five. Um, so without that alkalinity buffer, um, I, I guess our systems can have that trend. Uh, I, I found the aquaponic system that we ran to be a little more stable um, than these nursery systems with drum filters. And that was a sudden change. Um, but uh, I think that the KOH and the CAOH um, and the iron, what we put in our water over time, you guys, that's all we added. Um, I was there 13 years. Jim was probably over 30. But we didn't go out and buy any other supplements. Um, I, I think I once looked at potassium silicate for uh, a 29,000-gallon system to bump it to I forget what Steve had said. What's your recommendation? Five ppm for for potassium for, for silica. For silica, I prefer to keep my silica. What we found gives the best results for lettuce is above sixty ppm's, and and the reason is is that it helps for all of the um, uh, pathogenic reasons and an increase in in uh, heat stress as well reduces bolting, but it also increases crispness when it goes to shelf. Yeah, so we, I mean, we grew the gamut of crops too, from lettuce to fruiting tomatoes and okras. Um, we had some nutrient hogs in there for sure. Um, so oh, I just, uh, I, I think the, I one reason I don't like the KOH is it's a hazardous chemical and it's hard to buy and ship. Yeah, you can't so put to, it on a plane. Yeah, to get, example. To, to get past that and find a cheaper solution would be a great thing. Well, Montana Grow uh, makes a organic or uh, OMRI certified potassium silicate, uh, which you can ship internationally. Um, also, sometimes small scale. Uh, also, sometimes uh, magnesium is uh, um, deficient, and that you can tell, you can, and that results in leaves that are not, um, cri um, you know, crispy, what you would say, or um, firm, you know. Turgid. Um, turgid, whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Strongly. Um, well, Wilson finds that, but Wilson, you, Wilson, again, he's always on the borderline because he's adding so little feed in our system. So he's got to add a lot more supplements. And in our system, we, we have a surplus of nutrients and, you know, because we're doing a lot of fish. So we can afford to discharge nutrients and, uh, um, but we produce a lot of fish. We produce, you know, our system can produce like, one UVI commercial scale system can produce about 10,000, 11,000 pounds of fish annually. Yeah. That's a significant amount of fish. But you know, let me tell you something that I'm finding out with my consulting business here and, um, is that everybody focuses on the aquaponic system, but there's ancillary systems that are, that are needed. You need a bunch of ancillary systems. Uh, you need a quarantine system for when you get in and you buy fingerlings uh, or you know sex reverse fingerlings and they have to be quarantined for a couple of weeks that has to be a recirculating system 
Uh, you don't want to stock a one gram fingerling in your rearing your grow-out system. You want to have a fingerling rearing system that's producing a steady stream of um, advanced fingerlings that range in size from, well, let's just say an average of 50 grams. We usually chose 50 grams as our starting size. And then it would be 24 weeks to produce either a 500-gram fish or an 800-gram fish, depending on the stocking rate. And then the other thing about aquaponics is that when you harvest the fish, you can almost be assured that they're going to be off flavor because of all the dissolved organic matter in the water, and you've got to purge them. And uh, so you've got to put them for about four days, in a, at least four days in clean water, and that has to be a recirculating system with a biofilter and Solids removal because you know if you're purging a lot of fish, solids will, will build up even though you let them you don't feed them the day before. So you've got all these other systems. And then another thing is if you are you, if you're going commercial and you're harvesting um, you know you know five thousand pounds of fish every week, you might not have sales for those fish. So you need to have holding system and where you will hold the fish and you feed them a maintenance diet, which is a half of a percent of body weight per day. And then from those holding tanks, you put them into your purging tank as your sales, uh, as you line up your sales. So it's more complex than just an aquaponic system just sitting by itself. There's a lot of things involved in it. I'd Absolutely. also, I, I had one other question on the note that Charlie had is, what, what supplementation, if any of you guys done with molybdenum? Hold on a second. We never, um, we, we never supplemented. We ne a lot of times we never saw it in our water. It, sometimes it came up zero. <laughs> because I, I've noticed molybdenum. I've actually seen in, in an commercial system where the molybdenum, the, 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 it was old enough where the plants had stripped it out and. Uh, it is large vegetable, it was a lettuce system, and um, they are running super high nitrogen levels and the plants basically plowed through it all and they were showing really strange deficiencies because the molybdenum uptake was, the, the lack of molybdenum was affecting the, their ability to process the nitrogen. Uh, and that's why I was curious. Uh, Steve, I was saying, I was telling everybody, I wanted to remind that we only supplemented with the calcium, potassium and iron. So in the years I was there, and as far as I know, the years everybody was there, um, that we never went out and bought Epsom salts to add magnesium. Uh, we didn't add uh, molybdenum. Again, 29,000 gallon system, and we were trying to get farmers to adopt these systems um, and remote locations where a lot of things aren't available. Um, so uh, I, I would agree. I, I think there were times when molybdenum was probably nothing. Um, so maybe adding it would have enhanced the nutritional quality of the plant tissue, but we would have had to look at that data too. As Marty was talking about earlier, um, there's, some, there's some research out there that's showing that on these very low nutrient strengths, we can get as good or, ye or better yields um, and at times better nutrient quality as well. You know, just because sometimes it came, just because it came up zero sometimes, 0, 0.0, um, doesn't mean it was in 0 0.04. You know, so there could have been a trace trace amounts that were sufficient. You know, it, and what that showed was that the systems were so balanced in the the input and the uptake of that uh, element that we never registered much more than that. Um, so it was in check. 
you know, we, we never did actually, uh, well, we did one time I did a side-by-side -side comparison and we found hydroponics to be the same as aquaponics. And this was a, uh, with a, a deep water culture system. Um, you know, but we, when you run a system for years, we didn't change the water for years. Um, we didn't, maybe we weren't getting as like 100% growth that somebody else, someplace else can get, but we were getting good growth and producing a good marketable crop. When we did one experiment where we ran, we wanted to, in the early days, wanted to pr prove the sustainability of the system. So we produced lettuce for three straight years. We had in, we had, um, 150, like about 150 lettuce harvests. And it was still pumping out lettuce. We would get dips in the summertime when it got really, really hot. And we had pythium problems and that, which compounded things. You had a little bit of dip. And then when the cold temperature came, you look at, we, I graphed this. We graphed, we had a bar graph of this, of, uh, you know, 150 harvests. We only lost se se seven harvests, I think, due to uh, a hurricane that came through. So, Bravo, three years, aquaponic systems, recycling 98% of the water and buying no fertilizer and getting 27 cases of lettuce a week. Yeah. That's amazing. Although we could have gotten more than that. We, had, uh, we didn't have the ideal temperature. That, that was one thing we suffered with. It was a little warm. Definitely in the summertime. And then so, as we so were all. That's a, that's a great question. So a lot of people live in warmer climates. What varieties of lettuce were great in the tropics? If you go to jo Johnny Seeds, you can look up, look up heat. They have a category of heat tolerant lettuces. And um, the other thing that you can consider is shade cloths in the middle of the day. We never had shade cloth, but uh, it can get blazingly hot, in, uh, especially where I live in Thailand. And, uh, so from about 10 a.m. in the morning till maybe three in the afternoon, you should probably shade them. Uh, that's that that's one technique that you, you'll probably. I think if Charlie, if we had shade cloth, I think we wouldn't have had uh, the wilting in the middle of the day in those hot summer days. No, I was um, in Texas a couple years ago. I spent a year, a little over a year, running farm in Texas, and we were using 70 and 80 percent shade cloth on our hoop houses during really? the summertime. Yep. We switched mostly to basil at that time. Basil was thriving in that heat, but uh -huh. we had to, we had to shade it that much. I just put a 50% shade cloth on top of my greenhouse yesterday here in Santa Fe. It makes a world of difference. It does make a world of difference. But that slows down your growth, doesn't it? I can tell we get, we get too much sun in Santa Fe. So we have to block some of the sun. No, no. Um, Ken has had really good luck with say taking something like that and with basil or um, uh, rosemary or oregano, and and you take it and you can um, you see your aquaponic farmer. You can take it, blend it in a in a with some really high grade salt, and make an herb salt or an herb butter. I, not Ken. There's another aquaponic farmer I'm working with. Uh, previously that makes an herbed butter out of their stuff and they take butter melt it down with the herbs that grow on their farm and then resell that so you know a little bit of value added can go a long way as well yeah uh, there's a lot of value added stuff that you can do with these systems um the, the one the big one that i always talk about is the um the miles harston and uh, what what's that called that operation called in flanagan illinois uh, just, i don't even know if it's still there that was uh, that was Aqua Ranch. Oh yeah, Aqua Ranch. Well, he, he they, his wife made a basil vinaigrette 
uh, when they were selling the the big leaves to Whole Foods in Chicago, and then the smaller misshapen leaves, they made a basil vinaigrette out of it. And then he, what he did with the carcasses of the fish, he sold fillets, but he made a fish emulsion out of the uh, carcasses. You know, that's fish emulsion as they used to, to uh, fertilize house plants. You can buy it at the, you know, at the, the, the store, you know, that sells decorative plants. Anyway, um, they were getting a hundred. They they just they didn't bottle the fish emulsion. They just produced it, and they were getting two hundred dollars a barrel for, for fish emulsion. So there's a lot of tons of value-added things that you can do. I had a, I, a, a pretty big farm that was putting all their roots and shoots into barrels. And then the uh, pig guy would come pick it up for $1.25 a pound. You know, <laughs> it's a little bit of money, but he was getting, you know, 50-pound barrels every once in a while and turning that back into money. So, so on that note, what are some of the more um, peculiar or different or strange or maybe less um, orthodox aquaponic programs that, that you guys have been involved with? Oh man, my memory is is failing me. You know, I'm getting up. Yeah, to <laughs> <laughs> just being careful with his tongue right now. <laughs> uh, let's see what we can. Well, one thing that doesn't work is aeroponics. Um, I mean, aeroponics works in hydroponics, but the solids will clog those the emitters, those sprays. And I wouldn't recommend aquaponics for aeroponics. Um, I, it's, I'm running out of energy here. <laughs> well, I think there's um, no worries. I think I think there's ways around the aeroponics. Um, my friend Pedro, actually, your student also. Do you remember Pedro Casas in Puerto Rico, Jim? Vaguely. They Vaguely. had uh, agroponicos was one of our success stories there just south of San Juan. And um, he adopted uh, some A-frames all the way down one of his UVI troughs. And at the top, he used uh, an aeroponic kind of misting system. And it was every day they'd have to go by and walk through, hit all 18 A-frames or however many it was, and uh, clean it out. Um, but the systems grew uh, mint and watercress, and he had some basil plants in there, and pak choys, the uh, little pak choy plants. And that vertical really increased the spacing on one of, the, of our troughs. You know, something, um, I don't, when anybody comes to me with, crazy ideas well sometimes i have to then uh, sign a confidentiality statement <laughs> what i can't tell you one of the craziest ideas because i said sign the confidentiality statement they never did it of but course when sure. they come, when they come to me with crazy ideas i try to quickly talk them out of it and um and most of the time i refer them to taking an aquaponics course and now well you know my business partner wilson leonard just came out with a probably the best book on aquaponics that's, I'm sure it's the best book on aquaponics it's a 400 page book called the commercial aquaponics system so you, if anybody hasn't bought it you can go to his website and buy it his website is aquaponics solution anyway um, read his book because you'll learn all of, you know he's a very articulate person you'll learn all of, you know you get the update on everything except probably he doesn't know some of the things you've done, Stephen. <laughs> I don't know if he's got lack of a citizen there or not. 
<laughs> you know, uh, Jim, what I, I also get people come up with the most crazy ideas. You know, aquaponics is already fascinating and crazy. And uh, um, I, I usually tell people that you're on your own. You know, you're coming up with a new design that nobody's proven, nobody's run. And you it's not cookie cutter like hydroponics is. I can go to Crop King and get a Dutch bucket tomato system and a manual on how to run the whole thing and it kind of works. But aquaponics is a lot more. Uh, we say lazy man's hydroponics, but uh, as Jim's saying, there's a lot of other complexities with fingerling rearing and supply that uh, that hydroponic growers don't have. Um, so yeah, no, that that's that is actually one of the drawbacks of aquaponics because you've got to coordinate. You're, I mean, it's easy to produce transplants. Uh, it takes you know, from seeding; it's like three weeks to, uh, to get transplants to put in your system. But when when you deal with the fish, uh, there's a lot more complexity, and you've got to set up a, an assembly line kind of system that every single week you're gonna like harvest the fish tank. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna uh, take figlings and stock that tank. The way we had it in the Virgin Islands, we had a good good professional team. You know, four professionals and uh, we had it like clockwork when we harvested the the lettuce at six in the morning, six thirty in the morning. By eight uh, eight o'clock, the lettuce was harvested. By noon, all the transplants were in, and then by the next day, the roots were already going through the net pots. We harvested yeah. fish early in the morning, and um, and by noon, the next batch of fingerlings were stocked in there. And by that evening, they were feeding. And we did this for years and years and years and years, which actually kind of blew my mind that we that we did as well as we did we have a, a question from joe pate which i know charlie knows he says um hey guys just want to say great show so far just wondering how your thoughts are on pre-dosing culture water with enough k and calcium to meet nutrient levels and then bringing the ph down with phosphoric acid and then i guess on that question let me add to that what do you guys consider to be the limit for phosphorus and aquaponics uh -huh. I don't know. I always, we always just got enough, so I don't know. Um, I don't know what the limits are. There's a ratio, isn't there? There's a ratio that it has to be. Uh, Charlie, I think there's a ratio between phosphorus and something else that you need to maintain. So, so yeah. I found personally, I found that calcium to phosphorus ratio, you want a three to one, okay. and then you want a calcium to magnesium ratio of two to one. In general, that there's some things are different, you know, lettuce would be a little bit less than that. But in general, you stick to that, your crops are going to do great in aquaponics. And that's just speaking kind of vaguely, you know what I mean? We kind of, what we, our approach is what we, we dealt with whatever the system gave us, basically. Sure. We were, yeah, we didn't, we, we you know, our system was designed for a farmer that would just um, throw fish to feed in, you know, stock it. If you follow our guidelines, stock at the rate we say, you know, build us, you know, actually duplicate the UVI system, stock, duplicate your stocking rate or planting rate. And, and as long as you can keep the electricity going and no uh, disruption there and hurricanes or storms or whatever, it, it just works. You know, it's farmer friendly. And, and you don't need to be a scientist. You didn't need to be a scientist to, to run the system. You did have to have some basic understanding of what was going on, but uh, just follow the guidelines. And um, let's see, I was going to say something. Uh, somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, um, what was the first part of that question from Joe? Oh, yeah, that question. 
So it says, um, what are your thoughts on predosing culture water with enough calcium and potassium well, to meet nutrient levels to bring, and then bringing the pH down with phosphoric acid? No, I would, prior to stocking, that way you aren't playing catch up with adding a little every day and then you aren't limited with your additions to by pH. We never add phosphate, though. We never add phosphate to the system. Is he saying phosphorus? Yeah, he's saying using phosphoric acid to bring the pH down to add phosphorus to balance the K. Well, no, we, we, uh, well, we, we never did any of that stuff. What we did is we would start the system and we would feed uh, very minimally in the beginning and uh, so that uh, until the, it, it takes about a month for the biofilters to become established. And, um, and then after they're established, you, we would start stocking, we would stagger the plant production. So we would only plant one fourth of the system um, every week. And so it'd be an additional four weeks before it was at full production. And by that time, you were feeding at a pretty good rate. Let me, let me tell you what I'm recommending to people now that want to go commercial. Um, we had, we have, and this is just, I haven't tested this out or anything, but this, this is just a, a management practice. There's, if you stock the fish, you, it's one of the disadvantages of aquaponics. If you have four fish tanks and you want to stagger, it's 18 weeks before you can get up to full production. So the first week, at, at, at time zero, you're going to stock one of those tanks. And since you have like 29,000 gallons and you've got a tank full of small fingerlings, uh, you've got a big dilution factor. So you can feed pretty much what those fingerlings um would want to eat, although we recommend for the first month until the biofilter is established that you measure ammonia and nitrite every day and nitrate occasionally. And when you see the ammonia and the nitrate go down and nitrate go up, then you know your biofilter is established. Well, at the end of that six weeks, then you start your next batch of fish, so you're going to be at half capacity. That's when I would recommend putting in your first crop of plants after six weeks. Your first crop of plants, which would constitute 25% of the system. So that's just kind of a rule. Of thumb. I don't know if that's absolutely optimal or whatever, but uh, uh, and we don't do we don't work on any pre-establishment. I think if you work, I think what you're talking about is small systems where you've got just really small system and you, um, you, know, you want to get going fast. But we never did that. But uh, I, I think that what Joe is saying is very wise to jumpstart your system. Um, you know, Joe, if you're you're trying to get a quick uh, establishment, maybe for cash flow, maybe you could run the troughs almost like hydro for a little bit um, and then bring some of that nutrient in. That, and he's also saying if we add the, uh, I think what he's saying is if we add the potassium and the calcium maybe at, in advance, were those the two nutrients, Steve? Yeah, I, I think that, in my opinion, the best way to do that, if that was your goal, and say so you had a, a brand new system and you needed to boost the numbers and you wanted to do this, and say you, and this is also, same would apply if you didn't want to do it for that reason, but say you have a starting pH of 8.2, 8.4, you can actually just take a bunch of dry ice. It's dirt cheap. You can get it pretty much anywhere on the planet, just about. Um, and take your dry ice blocks, drop it in your aquaponic system before you actually throw any fish or bacteria or plants in the system. It'll crash the pH through carbonic acid, and then you can actually buffer it back up with your calcium and potassium, bringing it back to the proper pH level without any need to actually use the uh, phosphoric acid. That's very. That's a very, very good idea. <laughs> because yeah. when we started, a lot of times we started and the pH was 8, 
And so for the first several weeks, we couldn't add any of our supplements. And because the pH is already too high and our plants would, would suffer. So that's a good, that's a very good idea. Yeah. We didn't, did we have dry ice in the Virgin Islands? I don't know if we even had dry ice in the Virgin Islands. I think you do because they ship stuff in it all the time. So there's probably a, there's probably so some. I got turned on to that dry ice pH down method by, um, a bunch of koi guys that build koi ponds and it was one of the cheapest ways for us when we, we'd have a koi pond i'd fill it up for the first time and because of the sand or the rock or the tap water it's in the eights or you know uh, somewhere in the eight ph range and the koi these expensive koi i got 60 grand worth of koi sitting in my truck i can't put them in a ph as a, a whole point different i'll kill them so i could use the the dry ice i could run to the store drop that in there throw it in there, wait about two hours. It would bounce, it would all boil off. It would level out the pH in there and then I could buffer it back up. And then, you know, by the end of the day, I could actually put the fish in and yeah. bring them pretty, you know, adjust the pH pretty, pretty freaking close. And that, you know, allowed me to do things much faster rather than waiting two or three days to actually get these fish in. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good idea. Um, I, I, one, one thing is, uh, as long as we're talking about nutrients, you shouldn't, if you use a media system, you shouldn't use limestone as your media because you'll get too high of calcium levels in your system. You know, a, oh, lot, yeah. of, an, a lot of island situations where the only gravel is from the, you know, they find on the, on the seashore and stuff like that. That's all calcium carbonate. And if, so if your media is all calcium carbonate, you get really high calcium levels. Yeah, cool. Um, by the way, Jim Ricosi, um, Joe Pate is a, a graduate student at Kentucky State under Jim Tidwell and Janelle Hager. Yep, and he's actually the the gentleman, one of the gentlemen that helped do that the, uh, research project on the uh, and paper on the uh, lactobacillus increasing fish growth by fifteen percent. He also did some research with aquaponics and hemp as a crop at Kentucky State. Yep. So, big ups to Joe. Is there any value to hemp, though? I, I just had an inquiry today about hemp. Is there any value to that? Or is that? I mean, it grows slow, and it's not like cannabis or anything like that. For hemp, hemp, uh, unless you're going to do something really large scale, doesn't make sense because hemp it grows. You can grow it in a field, and and it's it's kind of like growing wheat or beans. It just doesn't yeah. or corn. It doesn't quite make sense in aquaponics, but um, you will get increased uh, production of certain cannabinoids and terpenes. But aren't there some high uh, CBD hemp plants that you grow as short plants full of oil seeds? Yep, yep. And that's the reason why when you can grow acres and acres and acres of something, even if it's much lower potency, right. you, your production is so much higher that it, it kind of swaps the need to do it on a smaller, like even in a greenhouse setting, you know, it, it, for, for medical cannabis, it makes sense. But for field hemp, it doesn't, unless you're doing it for clones or something for even production, it doesn't quite make sense. Okay. Jim, uh, I agree with Steve, kind of I'm tapping into you. Have you heard any new things and are you involved in any new projects? Uh, last, last July I was, in, I was in South Africa at Stellenbosch University giving a short course and uh, a workshop, a two-day workshop. Mm -hmm. And there was a man there from Pretoria that had a total paradigm shift <laughs> of an aquaponic system. And he's the he's the guru now in South Africa. Um, um, 
let's see, I, I can't think of a, he's got a special Klein, Kleinsure system or something like that, he call, calls it. Um, and what he did is he's actually got 600 square, no, he's got, he's got, yeah, I think he's 500 square meters of plant growing area. And he buys, you can buy a canvas material that's waterproof in South Africa. So his, he has these cells that are 14 meters by, is it six or eight meters wide? And um, anyway, he's got a huge plant growing area for one system. And what he did, and uh, I think he's going to run into trouble with that, is he made a D-ended uh, D raceway. I don't know if you know what a D-ended raceway is. It's a, yeah, a, a I do. The D-ends, or the, the, the ends are rounded, and you put a baffle in the middle. And he put 14 cages in there that are about 6 cubic meters per cage and stocked 1,000 fish per cage. And every week he, he draws the fish out of one of the cages and stocks it again and uh, he has a he has a uh, like a 42 week grow out or something like that and okay so th this is a real paradigm shift because he's producing like something like 20,000 pounds of fish in this tank but he didn't do it yet he was just starting it up and uh, I told him well one of the big problems he's going to have is getting the solids out of a out of a DN raceway tank and he has he had some kind of a program uh, that he looked at uh, where the deposits would be made if you had a certain uh, flow rate yep. going around, and he put four drain lines in. Four drain lines. I still don't think that's going to do it uh, because it's just not going to be that neat. It's not going to just. There's no bone bottom or anything. It's going to. He's going to get some of it out. And the other thing is, those cages occupied every square inch of the of the tank, and so the fish are not free to roam around the tank at at, at all. And um, and then he has, so I think he's going to run into trouble with that. And um, that, but that was a quite an original. But here's another amazing thing that he did, and that is, he's he can have temperatures as as low as like zero in, in between. Well, I'm talking about. I'm talking about centigrade. I, now that I live in the rest of the world, we deal in centigrade. Uh, it's, you know, it's images going from zero to 40 degrees centigrade. And like 40 degrees centigrade is like over 100 degrees Fahrenheit and zero right. degrees Fahrenheit is 32. And he went in before he built this system. He's building four of these systems. And before he did that, he buried this, um, what do you call this, um, um, that they put in greenhouse floors, the hydro, 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 Hydroton? Yeah, hydroton, those uh, heat, heat, point, heat lines. Um, not that. No, what, what are it when you put those 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 um, pipes in the floor to keep your greenhouse hot? Subterranean heating and cooling, underground. Radiant, radiant flooring. Radiant flooring. Well, but there's another name for the actual pipe. Anyway. Um, Gassed. Pex pipe. Okay, well, he went to work and he... <laughs> He had a backhoe and he put he dug trenches all around his facility that were, um, uh, I believe they were three meters deep. That's like about nine feet deep. And um, and he got at that depth, uh, the temperature remains constant year round. And by using heat exchangers, even though he had this incredible uh, fluctuation in atmospheric temperatures. By using heat exchangers, he was able to maintain his water temperature at 
22.7 degrees centigrade, which is roughly what about 70 degrees or something like that. Um, yeah. Fahrenheit. That's right. So he, so he had so he used geothermal heat, but he didn't he didn't have a geo. He just went very deep into the ground where the temperature it doesn't fluctuate, even though you could be freezing outside or over 100 degrees and boiling. And he used that temp temperature uh, to keep his water temperature at a constant temperature year round. I think he's he had some initial really good success with the plants. I mean, I saw some of the plants in there, but he was just starting up, and I think he's going to run into trouble with solids, you know, getting the solids out of the fish tank. Well, uh, Jim, I've seen um, systems not quite the D tanks, um, and I'm sure everybody can look it up, but it basically it takes a rectangular tank and you put a baffle down the middle and you curve up the corners and you move the water and so it gets a circular motion out of a rectangular tank um, i've yeah. seen some cages stacked in there if the, if those guys could loose some fish and have some fish on the outside of the cages swimming up and down and grazing the walls uh, that would help for sure i think so too because these cages were i think were flush to the bottom and they were adjacent right adjacent to each other and he had he had, oh, here's another thing he had. He had his inflowing water. He had an in, inflow line under each cage of, with fresh water coming up. It wasn't like going in at one end and then by the time it got around, there was really bad water quality. All the influent water was coming up at 14 separate uh, points right under each cage. Um, it, it was, and, and he did this all very, uh, very, very cheap. He had these um, wire meshes. For the you know wire mesh with the with the liner. Yep, absolutely. And I, and he had these big strange canvas uh, tanks that you know for the for the grow for the plants. Five hundred square meters. I mean five hundred square meters. That's well, five thousand square feet of plant growing area, and one fish tank. And one fish tank, and it's staggered and it's in cages. It's easy to harvest. It 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 was I, I consider it a paradigm shift, but I think he'll run into some problems. And, but I think that's something that should be pursued here too. You should look at that. Are oh, you saying this is a system that's just coming online? Yeah, he's going to do four of these, and uh, the, the slides he showed me were he, he. We shared a lot of information after the conference, and uh, sent me some slides. But I don't. I don't think he was up to capacity yet, and so I don't think he. He was brand new to fish culture, so I. I'm, he did his homework, but I don't think he realizes. What the practical aspects are going to run into? Yeah, yeah. But you know, he's already teaching. He's already teaching right away. I just saw pictures recently. He's teaching already. He's he, everybody. Nobody in South Africa cared about about what I had to say. They're all interested in what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, you guys. Um, um, that's something that if anybody's still listening, um that uh, I saw a presentation recently, as I was listening earlier, uh, Dr. Rikosi mentioned Dr. Merle Jensen. And so I watched a, uh, a video, he's a great speaker, man, what a great entertainer. So if you go on YouTube and look up Merle Jensen, um, if anybody doesn't know, if you go on YouTube and look up the uh, CEAC, Controlled Environment Agriculture Center at University of Arizona, there's a wealth of resources of uh, videos and all kinds of topics in that field of CEA. Uh, but Merle Jensen was talking about consulting. And some of us try to consult 
Um, some of us don't know anything about uh, consulting yet, but you, uh, maybe you should. Uh, but he talked about his history. And, and I want to honor having Jim Ricosi and thank Steve for putting it together. Um, because these guys have made a history. He has a whole line of experience um, to learn from and to teach people from all the mistakes as well as the good stuff. And so Merle was stressing that. So it's really hard for people young without experience um, to be representing our industry uh, as a consultant. So beware. I don't think many of your, your listeners are, are using consultants. Most of your listeners are tinkers. They're going to do it themselves. And that's what Jim and I taught for the whole time I was with him. Um, I still teach that. I taught a class recently with Steve. Uh, we inspire you to build your own system. Uh, we teach you the principles and we can help with some design work. Uh, but really, you're on your own, like I was saying earlier. And, and prove us, you know, do a good system and show it off and boast. Um, so I look forward to that. But thanks again, Jim, for for being here and sharing with us. Well, yeah, well, you know, I've, you've rejuvenated me here. I haven't been talking about phonics very much lately. <laughs> it was great to listen to you talk tonight. I mean, to hear you come from the very beginning on where you started out in your travels. Fantastic. I, I hope you come back again. You know? Yeah. Yes, thank well, you sure. so much for joining us this week. Absolutely. I'll come, back, I'll come back next year because I have a I have a condo in Florida, so I come back I come once a year in April. So I'll be okay. here next year. Sounds so, good. We'll do this again in a year. Okay. Now, now if people want to uh, find out more about what you do, how would they find out? Is there a place you can direct them, a website well, or a place they can find called, out more? Our our website is called the Aquaponics Doctors. And that's Wonderful. Wilson, that's Wilson Leonard and, and me. Yeah. Wonderful. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I'll make sure I get that in the description of the video uh, so that people can just click the link and, and get right to you. Okay. Thanks. And we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. That was awesome. All right. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you didn't run out of memory or your dad no i didn't run out yeah. of my <laughs> if I go offline, i'll see if i got any more data on my uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, like we well, thank you so much okay oh. well we're talking to y'all good luck thank you take care okay bye-bye uh, bye-bye hey and like we always say you guys if your system's in balance and you've taken care of your what you're supposed to take care of you should be able to sleep well tonight so i hope everybody sleeps well yeah. <laughs> All right then. All right, Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye. Peace, Steve. All right. How awesome. That was really cool. Um, uh, Dr. Faust, uh, if you're still there, you had something to mention on the um, on the shrimp there, and then I actually had two questions for you if you're still there from uh, we had in, in chat. Okay. You might have. Uh, He's still on mute, so if he's not there, if not, we'll, we'll see if he comes back. Um, how are you guys doing, uh, Hogmaster and um, uh, Roger? When, what's new with you guys? What's new with you, Hogmaster? Just trying to sell everything and get moved, buddy. Doing this across several state lines, moving is going to be an adventure for sure. But I got a lot of crap and don't need half of it, so I'm either going to pitch it or sell it. And start fresh it's going to be awesome hey, are you is that, there you go are you back now 
Yeah. yeah, I was out in my uh, uh, out in my uh, swim spa while I was listening. So I was oh, cool. swimming. I'm jealous. In. That's awesome. Obviously, you had something to chime in about the shrimp. Oh yeah, that's work for we've been doing in Ecuador for years. Uh, you know, it's not on the scale it should be because it's just hard to get people to adopt these things. But we had some innovators in shrimp production in Ecuador, and uh, they got into using our Ion 14 product, which is what I developed in Hawaii because of the silicic acid and activated humic substances, you know, limiting factors in soils, etc. And uh, we were selling that product in Ecuador because it's, it's, you know, volcanic soils like Hawaii, Ecuador, and there's that, that specific limiting factors in the soil. Then uh, our customer, who's sort of a broker, just dealer down there, he, uh, he had some customers that wanted uh, a, a silica source for shrimp. Uh, these are outside shrimp ponds that they, uh, they, their system down there is like dirt ponds you might say but anyway so they started using our uh uh ion 14 just throwing it in the water and the problem in shrimp is is this uh white uh, white spot disease and other diseases and uh things like that under high density and with the, with the humid of course it darkens the water which helps uh protect against uvb especially at that altitude uh well, this wasn't necessarily that high altitude, but but it, it protects, uh, you know, it gives a, a degree of, of disease resistance, not just because it colors the water, darkens the water, but because of the uh, polyphenols, carboxylics that activate resistance pathways. And, uh, but in general, it's just like chickens or, or what we're doing with, uh, um, well, chickens is a, probably a better example than cows, but just in general, better feed conversion, faster growth, more vigor, you know, so humic substances, I mean, at least the functional group part, you know, that, that's really doing the job there is just as crucial, maybe more crucial in aquaculture. Uh, but it follows a, a general rule of thumb from pretty most, most all animals provides the like in pigs, it's 14% uh, increased feed conversion. And chicken is about the same, a little less. And dairy, dairy cattle. So it doesn't really matter. But yeah, that's our experience in Ecuador. And then we had people using it on cray, crayfish in Louisiana in big, big operations, you know, where they put it on rice first and then and use our TM7 or the IN14, then they'd flood the paddy and then, the, you know, do the uh, crawdad culture. So the state shut them down because uh, our product's not approved. <laughs> not approved, right? And, uh, and the prob problem is with humic substances in the U.S. and why we have to we sell it in Europe and South America because in the U.S. the FDA doesn't approve it as a feed ingredient. And they've been holding back for years, uh, preventing it from being utilized because it effectively replaces antibiotics and uh, hormones in livestock feed. And in Holland and 
dealer no that they, they don't consider that's what they're looking for something they can replace antibiotics and hormones so that's what holds it back in the US there's nothing to stop people from using it we just can't label it as a aquaculture additive or a chicken feed supplement so that's what we're up against <laughs> it's, that's it's interesting I wasn't aware about that uh, regulatory problem. Yeah, oh yeah. Our uh, organization, the Human Product Trade Association, they hired a lobbyist in D.C. that was the FDA employee, Ph.D., and try to, you know, try to get push the thing through. You know, they won't even accept a grass petition. That's what they call generally regarded as safe, and that's the minimum, you know, to use it. And, and they won't even accept the petition. Whereas in Europe, it's approved as a uh, veterinary supplement. Just, there's no restrictions. And in Oregon, it's a uh, veterinary remedy. But the rest of the US, no. <laughs> you can use it. They're not going to stop you. You can't promote it. You can't label it. Uh, we sell it to uh, some of our other products to uh, hog producers in Iowa. You know, they just learn that it works and they just use it. But, uh, so that, that's the situation there. But it has huge potential in aquaculture. Absolutely, you know. I guess that, I do the Yeah, definitely an issue for US producers. We had a, another question. This is um, uh, Dr. Faust. What are the differences between chemical extracted kelp extract and cold pressed kelp extract? Well, it's just they're, you're, they're just using a hydrolysis. They're using a, uh, basically a hydroxide to, to uh, solubilize the kelp. That's, that's really been used for a long, long time. Norwegian kelp and so forth. Similar to how you solubilize humic substances, where you knock the pH down to, you know, about 11. And, uh, you know, it, it's like how you make soap. It's a saponification reaction. So it's not much different than, than what you do with soap, where you take the fat and insoluble stuff, and you turn it into something that's soluble by saponification of the fat into a, like an emulsion. Whereas, yeah, you could you could do you see because the but I, I don't know in, in terms of getting all the goodies, I'm not sure about cold pressed, but there were some good products on the market. You get the cytokinins that way. And whether you're getting the minerals, kelp is a good source of a whole range of minerals, and humic substances. You can test kelp products and you'll find humic substances because you know they're sea plants and. Sea is is a good source. All the humic acids line it up in the sea, and so you know kelp takes it up. So you have a certain amount of that in there. So it's just whatever's practical. I mean, whatever may works. Uh, most of the kelp on the market is going to be your hydro. You're using hydroxide solubilization. But I remember one the one in Maine. I forget who. But yeah, that was the deal on that. Yeah. Uh, that was nearly always a liquid product. Yeah, I used to buy it from a guy up in um, Waldport, Maine. 
I forget the name, but it was a cold press. It was a liquid, but it was very unstable. You know, you put it in your warehouse and, and the, and the five-gallon uh, pails would swell up and roll over, you know, from off-gassing. So, you know, it, it was a good product, but it just didn't have any shelf life. And you get the nice dry uh, maxi crop kelp from Norway, and it's, you know, you can keep that for a year, make the solution when you need it and use it right away. Because this stuff is very susceptible to microbial decomposition, big time. So you make up a kelp solution, you got to use it at least, you know, no, no longer than a week. You know, so that, that's the advantage of the soluble powder. But, you know, the technique is to, is to basically solubilize it with, uh, with uh, potassium hydroxide. Yet uh, another question is, what about grape pomace press, pressing remains as a source for humic acid? I use horsetail extract product and got enriched with that. And I wondered what the, uh, about the quality. Well, you know, I mean, humic substances take a long time to, to, to actually, you know, form. And uh, you can get it from, uh, like, vermicomposting. You know, um, you know, enough time. I mean, yeah, if you took great pumice and you composted it or use it as a vermicompost. Uh, of course, you know, you get a lot of uh, uh, <clears throat> tannins after great pumice. Uh, I was thinking about making a product of that because there's so much of it around you. But, uh, um, so yeah, it's it's it has some uh, useful uh, properties for sure, but it's just like anything. I mean, it's economics. You're handling a lot of a lot of bulky material. It takes time, takes space, energy. You know, so everything turns out to be like me. What's the most economical? Most. That's what you're looking for. We got another question. This is. Uh, Joe paid us are, are fulvic and humic acids considered tannins and then do you know what organic compounds the tannins would mostly consist of in an aquaponic system if you're using humics or fulvics uh, uh, since you have uh, experience with the shrimp and stuff I figured it'd be similar yeah well it is I mean basically humic substances is a, is a, a big range of high molecular weight to low molecular weight so the high molecular weight black and that's methylene groups and things that are related to coal and oil, okay? And then it gradates down to, to you know, brown. And so you have the humic, fulvic, fulvic, ulmic. <laughs> These are all fractions of, of, of humus or humic acids with an S. So there's a whole range of fractions that they, they go from useless and even toxic to to bioactive, and the bioactive ones are low low molecular weight, so they're more like brown, and then the fulvic acid is gold or yellowish gold color. Okay, so they all have to, they all have a different chemical profile, you know, like like the fulvic fraction is high in oxygen, and it's high in aromaticity. And that's 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 organic chemistry talk. 
Um, but that's where most of the bioactivity is, is in the low molecular weight. Because high molecular weight, cells can't utilize it. I mean, it can't be absorbed. It's too, too high molecular weight. That's what plugs up the roots. But the tannins, I mean, you know, I mean, that's the, the tan color you see in mountain streams. Not just mountain streams, uh, these tropical rivers that they would be clear if it weren't for humic substances. And, and it's another really, really a golden uh, yellowish color. And uh, that's leached from the rainforest into the streams, you know, from the breakdown of uh, uh, lignin. And that's where you get your tannins. You know, that's like how, how they extract tannins from bark. So it has to be the right kind of organic matter to yield tannins, and then they're modified by, you know, decomposition. There's five different tannins, okay? So this is what you see, what gives the color to water, and I believe uh, makes is the real difference in terms of productivity, that water, that drainage, or that uh, river system makes a huge difference. That's what I was telling you about Dr. Steinberg's work in the Rio Negro. And the Rio Negro is Negro because it's the humic substance coming out of it. And uh, so he's a freshwater ecologist. So he studied the relationship of, you know, all this stuff to, uh, you know, fish. And of course, you can't separate the, these kind of things from the natural ecosystem. So they're there, and uh, <clears throat> like the Oath of Kenofi Swamp, this is the source, great source. But yeah, that's the color you see in the water, is the tannins. And uh, it's strictly from the low molecular weight side of the humic substance. The black stuff is sludge on the bottom, or you know, may have a black color. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of complex thing. Well, let me jump in here because Steve jumped out of his. Sorry, sorry about. Oh, sorry about that. I was just refilling my glass here. I, uh, um, what are the five different tendons? Five different tendons. You don't want to go into that. It's too late at night for me to get into biochemistry. Uh, okay, I was just going to say uh, it's definitely a, a rabbit hole. I'd love to hear you go down someday. Yeah, well, that really is a rabbit hole. I mean, that's that's one that we're we're going down now. I'd have to pull out my book on humic substances, Dr. Tan, to give you that one. Because, yeah, he's like the the guy that's written the books, and that you can get the arcane chemistry that you you can't remember. You're going to go there. And what was his what was his what was his name again? Matter of fact, I did a, a video or yeah, audio recording uh, of an interview I did with him. I had a little talk show podcast years ago when I was in Hawaii. But he's written a couple books on the subject. I got all his books. But he was a professor at um, I think Georgia Tech or University of Georgia. 
But if you look at the humic acid literature, you'll see a lot, a lot of references to, to tan. Dr. Tan, T-A-N, Chinese, or Malaysian or something. But um, he, he gets into the nitty gritty uh, and he's put together, well, it's, it's kind of a source book on, on human substances and the chemistry. You know, th th this is something that they discuss at these meetings I go to. It's the time I fall asleep, you know, when all the chemists start really getting arcane chemistry, it's, it's sleepy time for me. You know, I'm looking for really the practical aspects of these things, you know, and then you know, the uh, on that note, we had another question is, I know some organic acids have anti-nutritional factors in fish. Are there any anti-nutritional factors related to fulvic or humic acids that you're aware of? I know that you definitely, um, personally, I know that you spoke about how there's a bell curve on the uh, humics and fulvics. I would imagine that would apply to other organisms aside from plants, yes? We've tested, uh, for instance, some of these humic substances from China. They're really based on pretty much a coal, really coal kind of a material, oxidized coal. They use it for drilling muds and things, but they were trying to sell it for, you know, plant growth purposes. And that's the kind of stuff that actually reduced <laughs> plant growth um, or reduced cell germ uh, seed germination. But that, that's the stuff that has all these methylene activities. You know, it's like in coal and oil and stuff like that. So there's definitely some negative. There's a range of negative compounds. You know, uh, can be. I mean, these things vary, like, gigantically. But the, the ones produced in nature, let's say, you know, like in the forest or Okanofi swamp or something like that, it's a pretty balanced system. You know? But, they, but it, again, it depends on what the... If, if it's humic substances made from saltwater sedge or pine, you know, it can be negative, it can be toxic. You know, if it's made from broadleaf trees, oaks, uh, cypress, you know, that kind of hardwood trees, uh, euphorbias in the, the tropics, that's the kind of the good stuff. You know, so, so it really is dependent on what the, the plants that, you know, were the feed material that started it. In other words, rich hardwood trees and nitrogen fixing trees produce a rich humic substances, which produce a rich, you know, uh, watershed productivity. So it's all tied together. It's, so you go throw some uh, something made out of coal in there. You know, a lot of it is whether it's it's aerobic or anaerobic, like like anything. Like if you make compost and it goes anaerobic on you, starts to smell, you know, hydrogen sulfite and all that. Smells like rotten egg. Because you let it go anaerobic, used up all the oxygen. Okay, so now it's producing stuff that if a plant root touches it, that root stops growing. That's it. And if you use it for mushroom production, forget it. You know, it kills the mycelium. So the substances that are formed in decomposition under lack of air, with no oxygen or air, 
are bad news. So, you know, these things have to form, you know, in, a, in an environment, you know, where there is oxygen and not like, because if they're forming aerobic, you get the high oxygen voltage, which is, you know, very high oxygen fraction. And uh, if it's deep, you get coal. You get, you know, the methylene groups, the stinky hydrogen sulfides, uh, toxic compounds. So it's pretty much organic matter can go one way or the other on this planet, whether it's aerobic or anaerobic. So that, that's, that's the main key there. You know, if that happens right, <laughs> it's a good thing. But try, try the, the, the water that comes out of a coal mine, see how that one goes for you. You know, check those streams out. There's not a living thing in the water. You know? But it's all like humic substances. It's all derived from plants. One of them will kill the stream, the other one makes it rich. Yeah, because like I say, it's just got to be a pretty narrow range of, uh, to be, you know, optimum results. So that's tea color. Tea, like iced tea color. And if it starts getting darker than that, you know. Um, so that's that's about it. You know, I think everybody's seen those kind of streams. Uh, no, maybe not. <laughs> if you live in Kansas, you might. But I remember, you know, being up in the mountains as a kid and noting that where we really were getting some good trout fishing up in the Appalachian Mountains is where we had that tea-colored water. And I didn't know what the hell it was, you know. I just like fishing. And uh, <clears throat> I was able to correlation there. But um, well, that's about it. It's just nature. Just nature. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> But if you're going to oh. do agriculture or agriculture, then you better you know, think about doing something. So, you know, it can be compost, vermicompost, uh, humic substances. But uh, like I work with uh, converting uh, biomass with uh, Pleurotus osteratus into a high-protein fish feed. That was something that I did. And, and I worked out a mechanical method to do it in mass quantities. Because that was the big problem in aquaculture, was the cost of the feed, availability of feed. So uh, it all, like I say, it all ties together. It all, it all fits together. Because those same fungi produce humic substances too. Because they can eat lignin. They convert lignin. And lignin and cellulose is what's behind all this. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, no, that, that was great. Um, I think I very much appreciate you coming back on the show again this week and, and joining us again. Yeah, well, you know, I enjoy talking about it. It's something I was doing, it brings back, you know, like, yeah, oh, that's right. I was doing all these things. Oh yeah, I developed an aquaculture. You know, I was feeding them mushroom uh, digested biomass, and I was using a circular waste raceway system. Yeah, 
what brings it all back. See, a lot of these things, you know, we worked on, and, and it's a long story what ends up happening. My geothermal aquaculture project. I mean, that's a long story. I don't want to go into it. <laughs> but it has to do with greedy rich guys and money and betrayal, things like that. Oh, uh, all the things that make up a good business story. Yeah, right. Or yeah. a book. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we'll wrap things up. We're running a little bit uh, longer than usual already. So I really appreciate everyone for coming out on the show. And I really, again, big thanks to uh, Dr. Rokosi for joining us and all the work he's done to help us get to the point where we can even host this show. So I very much appreciate him and all of his work he's done. And as well as Charlie for chiming in and joining us and Dr. Faust again for coming back. And um, again, any, any um, previous guests is always welcome on the show. And thanks a lot for, uh, for coming back again and hanging out with us and, and sharing your knowledge as well. So thanks everyone. And, uh, and we'll be back again next week. And um, you guys, uh, want, uh, Dr. Faust, why don't you tell everyone how to, how to find you if, if they want to reach you. Well, we just, matter of fact, I think I just had a notice today. I think we're about ready to go live on our new website. But it's, uh, and I'm going to put some of my stuff up there, like one of my, some of my presentations oh, yeah. that I did years ago, uh, you know, on ancient Hawaiian agriculture for sustainability and other stuff. But it's bioag.com, which is B I O A G.com. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bioag.com. Awesome. About, uh, yeah, you see the health products website is wujinsan.us. That's for the health product side and mushroom medicinal mushroom products. Awesome. I'll make sure I get those uh, out of the description as well so people can just click and don't have to even uh, navigate. And then uh, what about you, Roger? How do people find you? Well, you can find me at ilovegrowingmarijuana.com and Right here, I'm nursing my little two-year-old pit bull. She's in heat. I'm having to keep her separate from the big old, my big old hound dog. And she's wore out. I've been sitting here nursing her all night. Yeah, we're, I've been building a fence to be able to put up my, uh, my little uh, experimental greenhouse uh, uh, so I can start some aquaponics out here. So uh, we kind of decided today where we're going to place it finally. So that's because uh, I've had 10 different ideas, you know, it's one of those things. Well, one of the things is it's got to be in a proximity of the well that makes sense, you know, um, like uh, like a straight line, basically. <laughs> so we probably, I decided I'm going to put it right next to the driveway, the main big driveway. Built I'm going to build, I'm going to put it five feet off of that. And I'm just going to start with a 24 by 30. And I like what, um, I think it was Charlie, was it Charlie or was it, I think it was Charlie tonight talking about how people use greenhouses um, when they don't need them. And I thought that was interesting because when I first started, I kind of had a greenhouse thing, an area I built. And, you know, of course I had all these plants started, you know, so I, I, I just did, I built my system before I built my greenhouse. You know, then I built a small greenhouse. Well, actually I had a small greenhouse and I was in the, there's a, a transition from a, like a 12 by 16 to a 48 by 30. You know, uh, I, and I, I outfitted it with all the plum. I did all the plumbing and got the reservoirs and all that. And then I started putting plants in there. In the first year, I really didn't have plastic a lot. When I started out, it was such nice weather. You know, I just basically 
Um, and I followed the directions for outdoor hydroponics and all where you increase your, your mix by 15%, you know, the, the, the salinity of your mix by 15% it's raining, you know, um, and that was, again, that came from South Africa, you know, trials, you know, farms, how they did it in South Africa. So I always felt like it's hotter there and there's bigger bugs and, you know, you know, all around. But um, it's, if they can do it there, you could do it here in America. And it's very, it's very inexpensive a lot of the ways they do it, too. And I can see where you can add, you can um, add to aquaponics. I, well, I'm just seeing so many ways that you could, you know, I mean, uh, just I'm just seeing so many ways that things are meshing together where I almost question some of like, I, I love it. It came up tonight. I've been questioning some of the systems and things I've been hearing people say they're doing aquaponically, whether it's really hydroponics or aquaponics. So I thought that was great when, a doc, when Dr. James brought that up tonight, that, you know, a lot of people are doing things and they're kind of not really aquaponics, you know, but I think that's where we're at. It's just like the dual root zone. You, well, there you go. There's another argument. Well, Soil is an aquaponics. So, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I see what you got, but, you know, you can make an argument that it's not pure aquaponics. I mean, you know, just like, you know, so you're using hydroponic methods for aquaponics, right? I mean, I mean, the system kind of started with that, wouldn't you say? I mean, I didn't mean to draw this out long either. It's just, wow, I just, it just came out of my head, you know, all of a sudden, but. Well, know. no, so you're just, by, by having a dual root zone, you're getting the benefits of those micro, microbes. Um, that's all. But but aquaponics, by definition, doesn't have to be soilless. For example, wicking beds, how you go root crops, onions, potatoes, carrots, you, you have to have some kind of soil, medium, be it cocoa core or, or, or soil, you know, it doesn't, one or the other to get them to grow proper, so. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, anyway, yeah, I'll let you get going too, because I basically, yeah, I got this. This puppy's probably—they're all probably hungry because of the show. Um, Amy had to haul ass and go do some work tonight. She's kind of on call. I, I did want to tell everyone if you're in Colorado, um, I will be at the New Grows Cup on Saturday, so I will see you guys there. I did see a couple people in chat um, who will be there. I'm super stoked to meet y'all. Um, and uh, yeah, if you're in Colorado, uh, definitely check it out, dogrows.com slash dgccup. And you can uh, email them and they'll send you a link to get your, it's invite only uh, because of the rules in Colorado. So uh, you do have to get them to send you an invite link. Um, but definitely uh, come out, support the show. They're great guys. They also have a very awesome podcast uh, twice a day at 4, 4.20 a.m. and 4.20 p.m. called Do Grows Show. Uh, and, um, yeah, they'll, they'll be doing that. Um, we have um, at OroborosFarms.com. You can check out all the classes for the rest of the year. Uh, me and Charlie and Ken will be teaching uh, another class or two of the um, uh, commercial class this year. I believe one is in May and the next one. I forget when the last one is for the year. And then we have some uh, other classes coming up as well. Check out the, the schedule on there. And, uh, oh, we're also working on a really cool event. I can't talk more on it until we get the date settled. Um, but we have a really cool aquaponic slash cannabis event coming up that's going to be a week long. 
and it's going to bring in some of the coolest people that you guys would ever want to learn from and give you kind of a hardcore experience and it'll be way different than anything you guys have ever done before it's going to be really awesome and uh um, i can't talk anything beyond just a little bit of a teaser because we're still nailing down specifics and dates and and exactly who's going to show up um but um definitely uh uh want to plant the seed definitely look at uh uh, sometime in July or August, keep your keep your uh, a, a weekend a week free for us, and uh, I think you'll be happy you did. So, and that'll be out here in uh, in California. So, yeah, I can just imagine the line. Stay tuned. Oh yeah, you, yeah, it, it puts a big smile on my face with the people that have already agreed, and we're trying to to nail down the, uh, everyone and then and dates. So, you guys are gonna fucking love this if you're a vegetable producer or cannabis producer. Uh, you're going to really like it. And then if you guys are in the Bay Area for 420, um, uh, I haven't 100% decided. I know there's a cool event going on in San Francisco. Um, you can uh, shoot me an email if you guys are around and want to get together, and, uh, and we'll coordinate on that. Uh, you can shoot me an email at potentponics at gmail.com. And, um, yeah, uh, there's a big event up in San Fran. I think I might bop in and, and, and co hang out with some homies up there. If not, um, if you guys have a cool event going on, maybe we'll, we'll wander over there with a couple of goodies as well. So, um, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up. Um, again, check out my YouTube channel, Potent Ponix. Uh, we have great info. I'm going to start putting out some more content. We'll have some DGC uh, footage from the weekend. Uh, we'll a bunch of cool videos, hanging out, chilling with everybody out there. Um, I know tomorrow night is the grow tube thing. I'm going to hopefully be, uh, trying to hang out there. I don't know what's exactly what's going on. Uh, I think it's at the same place where the DGC cup is. I heard some rumors. I don't know if that's a true or not though, but we'll find out tomorrow. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, look forward to this weekend and hanging out with a bunch of our listeners and, um, getting really high. So check it out and I'll see you guys next week. Take care. Oh, 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 almost forgot. I got a really cool announcement for next week. I can't believe I almost forgot. Big shout out to Mr. Green Jeans who helped um, uh, get this uh, opportunity for the speaker for next week. Now, tentatively, uh, we, he might have to change weeks last minute. We have Gypsy Nirvana on next week. Gypsy Nirvana, if you're a seed and a breeder, is a legend. Gypsy Nirvana has been fighting extradition from the UK by the US government for years. And he just won his case against extradition a couple days ago. And he's going to talk to us all about his breeding experience, his battle with the DEA, his battle with the US government, and the trials and tribulations of being a uh, clandestine seed grower and selling your seeds across the planet uh, by someone that is world renowned and one of the biggest uh, names as far as the internet goes on on that and one of the biggest names as far as people that has fought the U.S. government and won. Yeah, because and what's so big about that is he won after Mark Emery spent several years yep. in federal prison and was extradited from Canada. So the fact that he won. And he's not getting put in prison in the United States is, is a pretty big precedent for the movement and uh, and medical marijuana. And hell yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yep. So that'll be really cool. Tentatively, we're, uh, we'll have him on. We might have to reschedule. He's 
he's joining us from the UK, um, which will be very late his time. That's the reason why we've had problems getting Jorge Cervantes on is because it's 3.30 in the morning in Spain. So we're trying to coordinate a time where he's not in Spain to get him on the show. Um, so uh, I've been playing tag with him via email and just kind of waiting for him to have a, a time when he's in a reasonable time zone for us. So that is uh, still happening. We have a couple of other cool guests that we got lined up. Uh, I'm not even going to rattle off a list right now, but we got a bunch of cool people. And um, yeah, so thanks a lot for everyone watching and we'll see you guys next week. Sorry for babbling so long. Cheers.